Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long informal conversations with my colleagues, with anyone whose work intersects with climate in some way. If you're new to podcasts and you don't want to listen to a long introduction, skip ahead now. Skip ahead to the music. The music is the transition between my introduction and the actual interview. Yeah, so this week I had the great pleasure to go talk with Professor Christine Lane, a professor of geography and the, at the University of Cambridge. I went over to her department. We went through a rather circuitous route to get to her uh, to a recording space. There were lots of staircases involved. I couldn't get back there if I needed to. I, I would need her guidance to get back to that same space. We had a, a really enjoyable chat, and I really appreciated pro- Professor Lane's time. Uh, so she's on her website anyway. She's listed as a geochronologist and quaternary geographer researching the mechanisms, timing, and environmental impacts of past climatic change and explosive volcanism. So, yeah, she's worked in a lot of different places. Uh, She has degrees from University of Wales, Royal Holloway, University of London, and University of Oxford. And she spent some time as a postdoc at Oxford. She spent some time as a, a fellow at Oxford and Manchester uh, spent some, and then she, uh, in 2016, came to Cambridge and has been a professor here uh, since then. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed our chat. We uh, we talked about many of those things that I just mentioned, explosive volcanism, digging uh, mud cores out of old lakes, paleo lakes, areas that used to be lakes, as, as she described them, and uh, seeing what you can infer about past climate change by looking for little bits of glass formed in gigantic volcanic explosions at various points in the Earth's history. And, and Professor Lane also likes to, uh, she works on uh, linking those sort of physical pictures with volcanic eruptions and, and climate change to the uh, movement of early humans, where humans like to settle, where they like to, to live, uh, and, and uh, their kind of behavior as a, as a species. Yeah, okay, so we will get into that in just a minute, you know, after the music. <laughs> I just just recently learned that uh, you know not everybody knows that some people they, they hear these long introductions on podcasts and, and not just mine it's a pretty common format to have fairly long introductions in the beginning and they kind of wonder where the actual interview begins and um, but I don't know I like this format I like listening to this format so that's part of why I adopted it I figured I'm not that weird I mean I know I'm weird but I'm not that weird that uh, if I'm enjoying listening to a particular kind of format, there must be folks out there who also uh, kind of like that particular format. Oh, by the way, um, I don't know if you're listening, but uh, there was a, an individual, you left a message for me, an audio message on Anchor, uh, and I have no way to get back in touch with you. You very kindly invited me onto your podcast, but you didn't mention the name of your podcast, and I literally have no way other than this <laughs> to get back in touch with you. Uh, so please feel free to uh, get get back in touch again. Twitter Twitter's pretty easy at Dan Jones Ocean. If you send me a message on there, um, I think that's probably the easiest way to get in touch. Uh, and that goes for everybody too, obviously. You know, at Dan Jones Ocean. And if you want to keep up with the podcast uh, at Climate SciPod, I maintain that account for the podcast. Um, right. Oh, there was something else I wanted to mention. So thanks so much for uh, downloading, for listening streaming, however you are accessing this. 
thanks for the reviews and thanks for the the favorites and thanks for the uh, comments that you're leaving. I, I appreciate those. I, I do read them and uh, they keep me going. They, they give me some positive feedback. They let me know that you're out there, that people who are enjoying this podcast exist and that uh, I'll, I will do my best to keep doing this thing as long as, uh, you know, people want to hear it. Uh, I will, will keep it up the best I can. That being said, I do want to warn you, um, I've decided to take a quick break over Christmas um, just for reasons of continuity so that I can um, make sure that in the new year I can keep these coming out roughly every two weeks. But uh, yeah, I'm going to take a quick break over Christmas and I won't produce any new ones over the kind of, uh, you know, end of December uh, holiday. So I'll get back to it in January, in the start of January. I have a couple of interviews, you know, scheduled to go. I'm going to go do a couple more recordings and uh, one in Oxford and one here in Cambridge where I, I live. Well, I live nearby there anyway. and uh, But I will be releasing those in January. So thanks for your patience on that and for understanding. This is not my job, my, my full-time job. This is just something that I'm doing on the side. Okay, so I think that's it in terms of introductions and uh, stuff that I needed to say up front. Uh, again, at ClimateSciPod is the Twitter account. I'm at DanJonesOcean. Yes, and if you would like to follow Professor Lane on Twitter, she has an account at CHS Lane. CHS Lane. All right, yeah, let's go ahead, get into it. Here's my chat with Professor of Geography, Christine Lane. A couple of weeks ago, I got back from a field trip yeah. in Ethiopia. So since then, I've been somewhat catching up with myself, but also starting to plan what we do with the materials that we collected. So we were in, um, we went out primarily for a project meeting about a project that's been running for four, four-ish years. We took um, sediment cores that record 500,000 years of climate from um, a huge basin, which is now a Paleo Lake Basin yeah. in southern Ethiopia. So it's so we've been mud and... Lots of mud, you know, uh, hundreds of metres of mud, yeah. And, uh, and bits of shell and stuff that has fallen out of the water column into the, into yeah, the mud. Yeah, lots of different... Well, in some areas, some nice biological proxies, lots of clay and complicated orthogenic uh, minerals that have formed because mm. it's a very arid environment and it hasn't always been a lake it's dried up and changed so we have what's that orthogenic sorry yeah <laughs> so because the conditions in the lake have changed so much there's a lot of complicated um, minerality where we get a lot of change in the primary material a lot of the material comes from the, the mountains around the basin okay, and the rivers yeah. that flow in okay and then as the conditions change phs change water levels change temperatures change a lot of it is, uh, has altered so it's a very complicated um record hmm. My part of the project has been looking at volcanic ashes, where they're preserved in that record. And to you help had a name for that. You called it tephra? Is tephra, it? Yeah. yeah. Tephra is everything that's explosively erupted from a volcano. Oh, cool. Okay, so, so right there I learned something. I didn't know yeah, that. So tephra is everything that has come from a volcanic explosion. From an explosive, you know, yeah. Explosive so they're volcano. sort of big, from kind of, when you're close to a volcano, you get the big bombs and blocks that bl are blasted out. And then as you get further away, it gets smaller. So you'll have, you know about pumice, I guess, mm. and those very light blocks. Um, and Lapilia kind of really gets smaller and it goes down to ash when you get really far away. So the stuff we're looking at is typically ash. Yeah. Um, so okay. if I say tephra, I'm nearly always talking about very fine grain material yeah. that travels a long way. But that's a kind of tephra. <coughs> it falls under that umbrella of tephra. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's a, basically a size classification. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, cool. So the, that makes sense that the bigger stuff, I mean, that, that's physically satisfying. The yeah. bigger stuff stays closer to the volcano. <laughs> yeah, it makes And the sense. smaller it gets, <laughs> yeah, it can get transported farther away, yeah. and, you know, carried around by the air currents and things. Yeah. Um, at which point 
could probably get. I mean, that that stuff can transported really long distances, right? The, yeah, the some, the, some, I think the furthest travel stuff is seven, seven or 8,000 kilometers. That's yeah. rare. That has to be a really huge eruption. Wow. Um, typically, sort of hundreds of kilometers, I guess, is, is fairly normal for an explosive eruption. For like a lot, most of the ash and tephra, you know, a few hundred kilometers, you said? Is kind for of the, the ash, the, fine, for the, the ash. finest material, yeah. It can okay. travel a long way. Yeah, how long were you in Ethiopia? Um, just two weeks. Just two weeks, yeah. yeah. That's right, I remember we emailed about it, didn't we? Because we were, we were seeing about possible dates, and yep. said, sorry, I'm going to Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you were, so this was a lake, a lake you said. And it was not a lake now, no, it was a paleo lake. lake. It used so to be a lake. It used to be a lake, yeah. Okay. And uh, it's a huge basin, amazing place. Um, I wasn't there when we took the course, so it was really cool to actually visit it, having worked on the mud. Oh, yeah. Um, an amazing basin, sort of... Um, comes down as a river, a river delta that comes in at the top end, and then you drive along these alluvial fans, which are where the material's washing off the mountainsides on the side of the basin, mm. and then uh, you drive for 60, 80 kilometres, and you get to the site where they took the cores from, and it's mm. just a huge, huge dry, dry lake bed. Dry um, lake bed. These lake, the mountains in the distance, mirages, it's so hot that it looks like there's water, but it's not real, dust oh, devils yeah. blowing over the water, mm. supposed water. It was really spectacular. Um, so we visited the site, and then... Afterwards, we were collecting ashes from other locations to try and match with the ones that we found in the sediment core that we, we've had for a few years. Okay, so other locations kind of near the old lake, well, the, what used to be a lake, the Paleo Lake. Yeah, a bit further north and a bit further west in um, locations where ashes have already been described and their archaeological or sites very famous for their archaeological remains, so um, where some of our earliest... One humans have been found, so sites like Omo Kibish and Konso, um, which, if you're an archaeologist, mm. would ring, ring some bells as some of the places we have our earliest fossil evidence for uh, modern humans. Around Ethiopia. Yeah. Yeah. So our earliest evidence in East Africa, there is others in North Africa, fossils that supposedly go back a bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you tell me more about that? I know very little about this. Yeah. About <clears throat> like, so these are early, our earliest fossil records of... Mm. Is it our species or is it before a precursor? It's our species. To, okay. I mean, probably not exactly as we yeah. are today. I mean, the, there's quite a bit of diversity in the very early fossil record. It's very sparse. There's not a lot mm. of material found. Yeah. Um, preservation's quite difficult in these kind of conditions. Um, it's quite hot and can be quite... Um, in some areas can be quite wet and the preservation can be very difficult. So it's bad for preservation. Preservation. Hot, hot, wet conditions, that's not good right, for... Yeah, high humidity um, isn't ideal for preservation. Hmm. Um, that? You don't get these kind of long... What you, you really want these nice, cool cave conditions that you have hmm. in the sort of the European Alps when we think of our remains of um, Neanderthals and early modern humans there, which are much more... Well, the modern humans are much more recent, but these are kind of cold limestone caves where nothing gets altered. Um, and the temperature is pretty steady. Yeah, and the conditions very, don't really change. Whereas that out on these very arid landscapes or very tropical landscapes, it's much harder to preserve fossil material. We do get lots of um, tools and have access and things like that. Well. Why, why is that? That's a dumb question that I want to ask. Like, okay, why is it harder to preserve fossils in a hot, humid environment than a cold, question, dry? Way? I didn't get to a simple way of uh-huh. thinking about that. Um, Mostly to do with the preservation of, of the carbon in... This is a little bit outside of my area. Yeah. Out, um, in the material. If it's op- on an open landscape, it will be scavenged. So that's primarily Some, a problem. Something will eat it or take it away that or can move be a, it. Or... Yeah, a problem. And you just get breakdown, oxidation of the materials. Okay, yeah, um, oxidation. Under different yeah, conditions. Oc- I'm not really... 
an expert on fossils, I'm afraid. That's okay. No, that's but, <laughs> yeah. but the broad idea. Yeah, I get I get the idea of oxidation possibly being bad for yeah know, uh, preservation. Yeah, you, you, it, of it, organic material. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It combines with oxygen. Oxygen in general is bad for <laughs> preserving stuff because yep. it's really reactive. Yeah, it's funny to think about how we constantly breathe in like a very volatile gas all the time and that's right, like yeah. we rely on it yeah. if we don't have it for you know 30 yeah. seconds we feel awful <laughs> like, yeah. um, and it's powering all of our metabolism yeah, yeah. so okay. a lot of the remains okay. a lot of the remains we find are on on the edge of lake beds where they might have been uh, flooded surfaces or you know, wetland surfaces um, or within some sites within caves where it's yeah more steady climate conditions so it's kind of also the changing of conditions that can really um, change the preservation of material so in a lake, there's maybe not as much just... There is oxygen, but not not necessarily just open. Yeah. So, so is it easier to preserve things in a, in a lake than... Oh, it's easier to know? bury them. Easier to bury them. Okay, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, so you had this core. This, you said you weren't there when you took it. No. But you no. went down to see the site, and you were doing some other, other work around... Yeah. You know, trying yeah. to coordinate. Because you were saying the idea was to take the record from this sediment core and to combine it with information from other sediment cores and to try to synthesize that in some way. So you have to get the time periods to match up. You have to figure out, right? Yeah, that's, I guess that's one of the challenges. Yeah, so the, 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 the bigger project working around this Paleo Lake is thinking about, it's part of a, a project called the Hominid Sites Paleo Lake Drilling Project, which is led by, well, it's a big international consortium, um, Professor Andy Cohen, who's in Arizona, is one of the, the uh, leads on the wider project. It's studied five different sites in Paleolate records in East Africa. So the site that we're working on, Chalbar, has um, been studied by a, mostly by a group from Cologne in the UK. And we've been trying... The, the last 500,000 years captures this period of modern human evolution. And so we've been trying to understand how the climate's changed during that period. So, And whether or not that climate change could have had any impact on, or may have had any impact on the evolution and the movement of modern humans around the landscape so it's really cool we yeah. need to try and link our nice climate record which shows the changing climates nicely to the archaeological record directly mm. and that we can do if we can find that same ash layers in the archaeology as in the core so then we can we know we're looking at the same moment in time so that's kind of what we were trying to do this so time was go to the archaeological sites and find the same ash layers oh, okay so the archaeological sites so you'd be looking for tools and human remains and whatever kind of stuff that you know early hominids left around to try to combine that with the paleo records so you said the ash layers are like really useful kind of markers that you can use because that that do you are you able to distinguish like oh that's the same ash layer from site to site yeah Yeah. that's what we're doing it's um not always easy yeah but that's kind of what that's what we do here in this research group is we study ash and try to characterize it um so we look at its chemical composition so ash is made up of different things it's made up of minerals and um, glass volcanic glass which is magma that's quenched or frozen instantly when it's erupted so it comes oh. very hot material thrown up into the atmosphere freezes so quickly that it can't grow a, into crystals right I it doesn't make a crystal structure so it's something so hot but it gets fired up high enough in the atmosphere that it freezes yeah oh that's really cool i'd never uh, of course yeah. that's possible i'd never thought about that that's nice that's really nice so the glass is the most useful part mm. because 
that captures the chemistry at the moment of the eruption. Yeah. So we don't, whereas the minerals kind of, minerals have constrained compositions, so they can only be have certain compositions to be the minerals they are. The glass can be really varied. So the glass And so it's like a fingerprint. We call it a fingerprinting technique. And yeah. it's a pretty efficient way if we can get the composition of those glass shards in the ash. They're very small. But yeah. if we can do that, then we can match our tephra layers in different locations together. The glass, okay. Yeah. Um, and it's flash frozen for you, basically. Yep. <laughs> the yep. atmosphere does the job of, fla- it of flash freezing it for It's you. also blasted into tiny pieces, which right. makes it kind of complicated to analyze, <laughs> right. but okay. um, it is frozen for us, yeah. It's yeah. Ready made. Okay, well, so when you call it glass, um, is that an analogy or how glass like is the. No, it is, it's glass, it's, it yeah. Glass. It's an amorphous, uh, supercooled liquid, I guess. So that is glass, yeah. Amorphous, supercooled liquid, okay. So, like the glass, the window I'm looking at now, we could say is this, it's also an amorphous, supercooled liquid. Yeah, I mean, you see yeah. in churches, really old churches, right, the stained glass at the bottom of the windows is usually mm. thicker than the top, right? Mm-hmm. And They're that's slowly. because of that slow flow, because it's not actually a, a solid. <laughs> Even it feels very solid to us, I guess. Yeah. It's solid on some time scales, but yeah. not on long <laughs> yeah. enough time scales. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's cool. Okay. So you said that these the, the bits of glass do sometimes have some chemical fingerprints that you can use to tie. Okay, th- this is from one particular eruption. But like you, you were kind of hinting at that there, there is some variation between different eruptions that means you might not always be able to say, oh, this glass is definitely from this eruption and this glass is definitely from this eruption, right? So there's some variation there. Yeah, so, well, nearly always we can say which volcano something came from. By its mm. composition. Okay. Um, and each eruption should should be compositionally distinct from others, but it depends a bit on the, how much of the, the magma chamber has been evacuated by the eruption mm. and how much the kind of chemistry has been reset. So if you get lots of fairly small explosive eruptions from the same volcano fairly close to close together in time, you might not get as much variation as if you get a really huge eruption that kind of resets the system and then gives it another batch of magma comes into the chamber and starts um, resets the clock as such or resets the chemistry. So it does depend a little bit. Um, Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, we have different challenges in areas where we don't know a lot about the volcanism. So East Africa is somewhere where we actually have very small databases of the compositions of different volcanoes. So the ashes that we're finding, we're still trying to work out which volcanoes they might come from. So we might be able to link them between our different sites, so between our climate record and our archaeological sites, but linking them actually to a, a volcanic eruption and a volcanic source is the next challenge that, that we have to think about. I never thought about that the chemistry within the magma chambers could be different, you know, yeah. and it, it has some time-evolving, yeah. you know, set of chemical processes... Yeah. See, I'm showing my kind of just oceanographic bias of I wasn't even aware of that. <laughs> right. I was I was just you know thinking of like oh yeah you know, there's some some magma and I guess mm. of course there's some variation but yeah that never yeah. occurred to me. So the um, so there's there's time evolving chemistry that you can potentially use to identify oh th- this eruption is uh, or th- this um, tephra is from this particular volcanic eruption yeah. because we see it has this particular mix. So when you say the chemistry is this like a ratio of different chemical species or is it like yeah, we, isotopic or a bit of a bit of both or i mean ideally all of those things should be consistent things, yeah typically we just measure um, major minor elements so um element oxides so if you um if you're familiar with any kind of geological research then the kind of um silicate minerals so silicate aluminium the alkalis iron, magnesium, these kind of things. We measure these as oxides. They're the kind of main constituents of the of the material of most silicate rocks, 
most rocks that aren't limestone. Um, but we also measure trace elements quite often, so we have to go down to the ones that really are only there in the kind of parts per million mm. composition to really differentiate between some of the eruptions that are very similar. Mm. Um, some people have done isotopic work for some volcanic systems, and that seems to help. The, but analytically, it can be quite difficult when we're really a long way from a volcano. Our individual shards of glass can be 20, 50 microns in size. Wow, so, okay. um, they're so tiny that it's very difficult to actually get high precision analysis of isotopic um, yeah, of isotopes and even the trace elements can be a challenge because you need quite a big volume of material to actually get data that measures these elements above the kind of detection limits of many instruments. How do you isolate it? I guess you have to do a lot of sifting or... Yeah, you, a lot yeah, of sifting, yeah. Of sifting, I mean, yeah. if we found the ash on the landscape, which is what we were doing last, you know, last month, that's not too bad, so you actually just sample visible ash, mm. but... Um, a lot of the time, like in our lake core, we have to isolate the ash from the lake sediments, <coughs> which can take a bit of time mm-hmm. um, and isn't always easy. So you don't necessarily know that there's an ash layer there, but you don't see anything by eye. But you have to, um, yeah, we have to sieve it, then we have to do a density extraction, uh, which means we separate out the material that has the same density as the, the glass, the volcanic glass. And then... Um, yeah, then it's a case of looking down the microscope to see if the glass is there. And if we need to, we have to pick out the glasses manually, these small glass shards under the microscope, to prepare them for geochemistry. So Pick them out manually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite a slow process. That does sound... Yeah, so that, that sounds like it could be tedious, trying to find individual tiny, tiny glass shards just microscopically, you know. Yeah. Um, is it usually fairly clear though if you find one is it like you know oh it looks like a little piece of glass so yeah. that's you know yeah you I know, think so and when you get yeah. when you get practicing mm. it becomes quite quick mm. um, picking them manually is, is probably the one of the trickier bits of the of the procedure and mm. we've tried different ways to separate and concentrate but in the end when you've only got a very small amount sometimes we work on samples so we have maybe 10 or 20 shards of glass in a gram of sediment mm. then there isn't really an automated way that we've discovered yet that can reliably extract every single piece of that glass so we need every yeah. shard we get and it seems that at the moment the manual technique is is the most reliable yeah um, some people describe it when I, mean, I had a, a technician a few years ago a um, wonderful woman called vicky and she um described it as playing a computer game mm. you're, you're looking down the microscope you have a needle you're, you're pointing towards your little shards you're moving them around and sucking them up and she quite yeah you kind of get in the zone <laughs> so oh, when you say sucking them up so there's a tiny tiny vacuum that we you have, have a little there, syringe that a very mm-hmm. use a gas chromatography syringe and, and suck suck these little shards up that wow. we want. You're just yeah. trying to get something that's maybe tens of microns across using a very yeah. tiny little... Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, that's pretty amazing. That's quite fun. It's a bit different from, yeah, these huge layers that we sometimes work on. So it's, yeah. it's um, some different techniques in what we do. Uh, don't breathe too hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> it must be isolated in some way to where you can't just go... Yeah, we use it. <sighs> and then accidentally blow off the Yeah, away. that can happen. But no, we work in water, so that doesn't happen. Um, oh, okay. The, yeah, under whatever. the microscope, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah, okay, so it's suspended in a little bit of water. Uh, well, so they're heavier than water, so they, yeah, they, they're just on a, on a small side in a drop of water, and then you can work under the microscope. Okay, yeah. And suck up the ones that are volcanic glass and leave the others behind. Oh, that's pretty amazing, yeah. So how do you get the whole, um, when you're transporting stuff back here, is it a lot of volume? How do you transport that stuff from Ethiopia here? Uh, well, in the case of this, I mean, it depends on the type oh, of material, yeah. right? So, um 
in the case of this trip, the samples are sat on my uh, my colleague Celine's desk right now in a box, neatly, <laughs> not too big, um, because we were sampling visible ashes. It's much easier. We just took you know enough to get the analyses and make sure we're characterising everything that's there rather than. Um, searching for the stuff, did yeah. that work in the field? Um, when we work on sediment cores, um, I tend to um, just take smaller samples because once you take a material out of a core, the core starts to degrade. So we tend to, rather than to work on the whole cores, I tend to um, just take small samples of cores that, and then leave them in the, the cold store of my colleagues who have good cold store facilities. How do you, how do you transport them? Do you need to like? Because you, you mentioned this long drive mm. to the lake bed, right? So you mm. have to drive them out of the out of the lake bed area in this particular example, mm. and you have to. Sounds like you want to keep them cool, so you have to keep them in some cold storage and then fly them back up here. I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, they don't need to. Well, I mean, they would. If you were, had them exposed for a long time, you'd have to cool them. But if not, no, it's fine. I mean, they've been in the in fluctuating yeah. conditions for like, hundreds of thousands of years, and a day in the a warm isn't going <laughs> to. They've been in much worse. Them off. Yeah, yeah, they've seen much yeah. worse conditions. Yeah, yeah. so okay. the material's not too too delicate or too fragile. Okay, yeah. So there's some. Can you just take it through if if you're going through the airport? Can you just have it as you know? No, like, you need to get the know, right export licenses to right to bring anything that's um could be a growing a growing medium. Yeah. Or anything that might be anything to do with archaeology is right. You know, we don't. So everything was exported out through the Ministry of Mines in Ethiopia. So you have to fill out some forms saying, here's what I'm going to, here's the sort of thing I would like to take. And, yeah, yeah. You, know, you have to have permits for working in many places, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. You have to sort all that out beforehand, I would imagine. You have to let them know you're coming. And Yeah, yeah. well, in this case, I work closely with a colleague at Addis Ababa University who's a geologist there, so he's a very useful person. Um, and he is able to negotiate the paperwork much easier than it would be for us to do. So Yeah, right, you get a local yeah, person on the ground who knows how it works. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Knows, I mean, he's a wonderful geologist and, hmm. yeah, he's been involved in the project all the way through. Yeah. Probably knows some people, knows the right people oh, yeah. to talk to, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah, so you said this is the... Well, I, I did a little bit of looking on your website. So you mentioned that you're running this Tefra lab. So yeah. this is a you know, lab studying things that have been ejected from yeah. volcanoes, yeah. from explosive volcanoes. Um, and so you've got a lot of different lab sites kind of here on campus, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got, uh, you mentioned you need to sift things, so you've got sieves, and yeah. what, what, what sort of kind of tools do you work with kind of on a, on a typical, if you're doing some lab stuff, yeah. you know, what sort of pieces of equipment would you use? So right below us now is um, sort of the most isolated lab in the department, I guess. We're a bit tucked away over here. Um, so we have a cryptotephra lab. So we call tephra that you can't see with the naked eye cryptotephra. Crypto. So okay. when we look at a lake core and you don't see layers of ash in it, but we look for them, the ash you find would be called cryptotephra. Hmm. Um, or sometimes people call it microtephra. And that would be this, like the glass, the tiny, the tiny really glass, really tiny pieces example, of glass in very cri- low concentration. Would be cryptotephra. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a transformer or something to me. <laughs> um, so we have a lab for the cryptotephra extraction, so extracting it from the sediments that's uh, isolated from the, the main geographical laboratories. So we don't do anything in there. We'd never open a box of visible ash in there. We would, if you, I mean, when I got back from Ethiopia, you know, everything has to be washed before I come in there mm. because we'll find it in our samples, even if it's one or two shards. Mm-hmm. So the procedure we go through is kind of forensic. We do, we would have the sediment. We use um, mild acids to get rid of anything that's carbonate because we know our ash is not made of carbonate material. Mm. Um, we would, uh, we might uh, burn the sample off in an oven to remove any organic material if it was very organic. Um, because we know our material isn't organic, mm. then we sieve it to a size fraction we would expect to find ash in, depending on where we are and how far we are from volcanoes. Usually we're working 
around 25 to 100 microns or something like this. So mm. people always say 100 microns is as thin as a human hair. So it's mm. a bit thinner than a human hair. So you're physically and chemically <laughs> getting rid of the stuff you're not interested yeah, in. Basically yeah, basically just trying to reduce the amount of material so we end up with everything that could possibly be volcanic glass. Mm. So then we do that heavy, we use a heavy liquid to float off the density fraction that we want so we can control the density of a liquid. Mm. Centrifuge material, isolate this fraction that is the, you know, should have the right density, the right size, and be silicate. And then we make slides and look under the microscope and count what we see. Sometimes it's great, you get loads, and you look at a slide and it's just full of volcanic glass, and other times it can be a slow process of not finding anything. It reminds me of, like, mathematically doing the whole proof by elimination thing. Saying, like, well, it could be one of these three things. Let's get rid of as many things as possible. Basically, yeah. (laughs) So that we are forced to conclude, oh, this is the the thing we want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There are other Uh, methods for detecting ash layers that you can't see. So people have used x-ray scanning methods to do, or or CT scanning methods, like CT scanners you get Mm -hmm. in hospital to look at, which detect changes in density or changes in chemical composition. Um, the people have put cores through some of these instruments. And if the, if the ash is in a high enough concentration, you can find them, but you don't find everything. Every study has pretty much concluded that a certain percentage was missed. So oh, really, this. just because it's too low concentration or not so distinct from the background sediments, mm. composition, they might not be that different. Um, yeah. So it's difficult. So it's too small, the concentration of whatever you're looking for? The yeah, CT too small scan. or too yeah. dispersed within the, within a, the sediment. I mean, if we use some of our best X-ray scanners, X-ray uh, refraction scanners, then we're working unusually on 20 or 30 micron steps um, down the core. And then if you have a you know a little layer that's only 20 or 30 microns thick, you might just skip over it. Mm. Um, you might accidentally miss it yeah. in that process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess well, the CT scan, you know, the, the, I guess its intended purpose is to look at entire organs or something, or you know, yeah. whole whole yeah. parts of organs, so that makes sense that it, it's neat to think about trying to use it for other purposes like that so but you're saying that maybe that that approach isn't ideal for some of the stuff you're, you're if you're really trying to find tiny tiny amounts of ash then not a you might miss it okay um people have used it really inventively there's some cool studies that a guy called adam griggs who was at swansea a few years ago did and he was scanning using a ct scanner marine cores marine sediment cores which i guess you might be more familiar with mm. where they have these ash layers in them and he was looking at the structures of the ash layer. So these ash layers are in, have been biotubated. So they've had burrows, you know, uh, organisms burrowing oh, right, through right. them. They've yeah. had maybe currents on the bottom of the ocean reworking them. Mm-hmm. And you see kind of in these, effectively think of a, a circular cylinder that he's scanned. Mm-hmm. And you see kind of the background sediment he can effectively remove. And then you just get this scan which shows a thick layer of ash, maybe a couple of centimetres thick. And then these kind of rootlet structures, burrow structures going down, rootlets kind of coming up and all these shapes. And you see how... Mm-hmm. The layer isn't, you know, an invisible layer can be really dispersed, and the structures, that you, you know, you see how these materials get reworked and remobilized within the sediment. That was really exciting. Oh, so you can, yeah. I mean, the CT scanner has its place for sure. So I'm picturing um, a three-dimensional kind of shape that yeah. has like a, a layer, but then there are um, kind of bits poking up and down from yeah. it, showing you how yeah. you know small organisms have yeah. kind of transported the material up and down the yeah. core. So you exactly. can like. Oh, that that that's really cool. So you can get some measure or sense of uh, sort of dispersion, you know, sort of like, oh, this material, mm. you know, if you look at any one layer, you might be looking at stuff from layers that, I don't know, a few centimeters that way or a few centimeters that way, some, some yeah. length scale. So right? if you some idea of the kind of uncertainties of when we, when we say the ash layer is at this depth, you know, we might have only sampled a tiny bit of that core. Right. So actually we might have it, you know, in some situations there is probably more 
or if, there were, if you're in a site where there would be bioturbation or currents reworking the material, then there may be a bit more depth uncertainty than perhaps we realised. Yeah, you could be looking at depths, uh, ash from a few different depths, possibly. Yeah. 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 Okay. It depends on the environment you work in. Some mm. of the sites that I work in are these amazing um, laminated lake sites that we have effectively annual layers and you see so that you know that sediment is undisturbed because mm. otherwise the, the layers wouldn't exist. So you get, um, and they're defined by algal blooms. So you get effectively summer, spring or summer blooms of certain algae, and as they settle out in their layers, the bottom of the lake is completely anoxic. So nothing's living oh. down there, nothing's churning it up. Yeah. And they're undisturbed, and you get these beautiful kind of barcode sequences of, mm. of sediment. So in those environments, we don't expect that we've got any problems with the location of our tephra. Yeah. Um, because once it gets in there, it's sealed, nothing moves. That's- so. And you can so you can yeah. see the individual years. You can, you can see the individual years, you can seasonal see seasons, cycle. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that that must help you in your, if you're trying to figure out the timing. If you're trying to figure out the age and things, do. you've got a yeah. you've potentially got a really clear kind of seasonal cycle. From, yeah. From Unfortunately, the these things aren't. You know, it depends on what time period you're working in. They're not always annually layered right through to the present. So it's not quite like the the tree rings we have for the last few ten thousand years, where you can actually cross correlate all your tree ring records mm. to the present to to count right the way through. Right. We have. Uh, we don't have as many of these lakes as they have tree rings in there. But it's good for counting intervals. So if you have, you know, multiple eruptions and, and the laminations are, are continuous in between those periods, you can then say, well, how often do these eruptions take place? You might have some uncertainty on the absolute age. Mm-hmm. Right? But, um, oh, but yeah, yeah frequency. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You have a nice long record. You can tell how long the record is and mm-hmm. you can see the frequency of yeah. um, volcanic eruptions. And that gives you some measure of the, of the timing. And yeah, that makes sense. I was thinking about, um, so you mentioned that a lot of your work, you're not only looking at the climate and how it has changed and in the past, but also the potential impacts on you know, where hominids ended up moving around, mm-hmm. if there are any possible impacts on you know, hominid evolution and things. Yeah. Can you give me a sense of like, some of the big themes in that line of work, uh, in that you know, kind of current research? What are some of the, you know, do you have some, uh, are there big questions, are there... Uh, kind of broad directions that the research is going in, you know? Yeah, so there are different theories about, or many different theories about why hominins moved from East Africa, if that was where they they sort of originated, which I think the consensus still is they came from that part of Africa. Hmm. Um, But we know that they were existing also around the same time, if not earlier, in North and South Africa. So they were moving across the Hmm. landscape. So we we don't really have this idea that they were just in one place anymore and then they left Africa. We Hmm. have this really... Quite a, what was probably quite a, a diverse species living across a whole range of landscapes and different types of environments, so not just inhabiting one particular type of environment. And they probably got more diverse and moved over larger areas as, they, as the species' populations grew and then as they developed new behavioural traits and adaptations and that kind of thing. And there's been lots of theories that a lot of this would have been driven by changes in the climate, forcing changes in the environments that they lived in. So if... The real classic, very old and now considered fairly outdated theory is this idea that they humans had to adapt to savanna landscapes, so they had to get up on. You know, that's why the very earliest uh, mm. hominins were on two legs, right? This bipedal theories, but a you lot of that you said that's outdated. Well, that's... we think that the, we don't. I think there's no longer this kind of one-dimensional idea about a landscape, right? The African landscape has never been just a savanna. Mm. It's always been a very diverse and variable landscape. There's been changes in vegetation, but also it's hugely topographically diverse. You know, there's, um, you know, there's really, Mountainous really variable and different 
populations would have been living in very different and occupying different mm. spaces and probably therefore developing different behaviours. Yeah. So through time, those, as those behaviours evolve, people have moved around and become more and more adaptable one way or another. And there's a lot of different theories about whether it was climatic change that forced those adaptations. So if the climate changes, you either adapt um, to survive or you don't, or you go extinct. If you haven't got the ability to survive in the new landscape or it may be that um, regular climatic changes were effectively making people more adaptable so that when the climate got more stable they then could start to move and occupy more areas Um, or it may be uh, some combination I guess of all of these things there's lots and lots of theories out there over the years or it may have been that completely climate independent people were evolving anyway Yeah. people were meeting as populations grow you're meeting more people and there's plenty of other stimulus to exchange and think of new behaviours and develop genetic variation and and explore and this kind of thing so it may not have been a role of climate okay yeah so, so we're sort of trying to the, test some of these I what's guess. the time period well the kind of rough, rough range so thing? for me i'm working particularly with on the modern modern human early modern human um you said like 150 so probably years or so the earliest dates we have for them in north africa we've got fossils that are dated to 300,000 years ago the oldest fossils in eastern africa are about 200,000 years mm-hmm. but we've got um excuse me, stone tools that suggest that the same people were on the landscape or people doing the same things were on the landscape probably at least maybe 100,000 years before that. So it's around two okay. to three, in this sort of 200 to 300 year, 100,000 year window that people seem to, modern humans seem to be arriving. Is there much evolution over that time period? That that feels short to me for an, on an evolutionary time scale, but yeah. I, I'm not a biologist, so I don't have a super great sense of what, because you know, I, I guess you wouldn't expect very much evolution over 10,000 years, right? Cause, yeah. uh, but is hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years, are we starting to get into the ter- little territory where there could be some? Well, we... So if you talk to some of the evolutionary biologists, I guess they would tell you that, you know, it's not... You know, every set of fossils we have, they don't look identical. This is quite right, a diverse right. species anyway. Yeah. But actually we're talking more at this stage about behavioural evolution and dispersal more than necessarily... Genetic genetic evolution so there would have been changes obviously taking place but it's more about behavior and the sort of taking up of modern human behaviors um which are things like symbolism trade communication these kind of um these kind of things cool okay yeah it feels Mm. like in my mind that's a good distinction to make to understand that we're talking about yeah behavioral evolution and not like not um a species changing in 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 a genetic structure in Mm. huge ways over Mm. hundreds of thousands of year kind of time scales yeah okay so the big themes you were kind of saying that the, to what extent does climate play a role in shaping that behavior, right? Yeah. And you were saying that at the moment, is it pretty pretty open? You you said there are a lot of different theories, so things aren't super well constrained right now. Yeah. Is the kind of feeling I'm getting? The, yeah. So there's well, there's different theories. They're very difficult to test without good chronology. So hmm. we don't have a lot of well, without one more fossils. You know, yeah. there is a limited amount of data that we effectively, you know, have these little pinprick holes into what actually happened to, to peep through but um it's also to do with the dating you know we don't know really how what exactly was happening on the landscape we have very few records that tell us about what the environment was like right what you know exactly where these hominids were living over the last two to three hundred thousand years so we get these little snapshots maybe where the archaeology has been found um or in particular sites where nice where there are good records like from lakes or we get data from the Indian Ocean Marine Corps, which tell us something mm. about the regional climate, yeah. but not about the actual ecotones that these people were living within. So, Ecotones? 
well, so the, the actual environment and suite of different ecosystems that they were occupying okay. on the landscape, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we can kind of get a broad climatic picture, some idea about uh, broad environmental changes, maybe by looking at um, isotopic changes or, veget- or pollen that gets into the cores or other things that will tell us about sea levels and that kind of thing. But we don't get that kind of detail on the sort of the human scale. Yeah. Right? So we need to get more of these records that tell us about that, and then we need to be able to date them and actually say, well... You know, because it matters if you've got twenty or thirty thousand years of uncertainty. If you're talking about how people are behaving and evolving their behaviours on those kind of timescales, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm always impressed by people who do paleo paleo timescale stuff. Yeah. Like you said, you know, a, a limited number of samples, typically yeah. big error bars. So it's really like it's not for the faint of heart. I don't think you really have to be brave to yeah. <laughs> to take this on and uh, to realize that it's going to be hard to pin down some of this stuff. Yeah, sure. yeah. Right. But I guess the other side of that, maybe the more positive interpretation, is you know you've got a lot more kind of wiggle room within that to try out different ideas. You know, because yeah. once once things really start getting kind of nailed down by the data, then well, you don't have as, as big of a range of possibilities to explore, right. which is you know good scientifically, but it gives you. Uh, I kind of wanted to call it a playground, right? If you have a big, wide open space. And and I don't mean that in a diminutive way, of course. Yeah, I yeah. just mean like you've got this big open space that you can think yeah. about different things and different connections. And so you have to be the kind of person who is to, is comfortable with that and excited by that kind of wide open, you know, space. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, unfortunately, I'm one of the people who's trying to pin it down, you know. I'm, I'm the one trying to rein <laughs> people in and say, well, let's look at the details first and try and date these things yeah. and actually try and test some of those theories, which is fascinating, you know, yeah. to say like, you know, can we show that these, what environment these people were living in, and can we show whether this, how fast this environment was changing? Mm. And we could do that if we could date the records better. Yeah, yeah that's what you got to do. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the process. Yeah, try to try to pin it down, try to resolve some of these questions and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exciting. Um, so, the are there? Um, I was looking at some of the other projects and things. So I noticed there was one called. Um, you may have already discussed some of these, yeah. right? You know, there was one called uh, Intimate, which I think was okay, relating yeah. different. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about that? Or yeah, so Intimate is a, um, a network of paleoclimate scientists. This is well away from the sort of uh, hominin stories. Okay, okay. Um, it's typically a more of a northern hemisphere thing. Um, so it was a network started up in the 90s by um, two of the kind of uh, big names in quaternary science in the UK, John Lowe and Mike Walker. And they set up a, a group working with people who um, across the sort of North Atlantic seaboard areas and they had a project where they got people together. So some of the first pioneers on the Greenland ice cores were there. Some of the guys working from the Oceanographic Institutes in the US. And they got their records together. They've all been studying how the climate's changed since the last glacial maximum. And they said, you know, they, there was this note, this realization that a lot of the records looked the same, right? The, the pollen records from Scotland, the ice core records, the marine core records were all showing the same kind of oscillations. And they said, well, you know, let's try and look, look into this more and say, what does this tell us about how the climate? Is behaving. Why should we be seeing? How connected is the climate in these different areas, and, yeah. and, and what are, what can we learn from that? So it kind of started out of this discussion in the 90s, and then evolves into a network of scientists that um, get together every year or a couple of years to um, really start to kind of rigorously test some of these ideas of synchronous climate across the world or in different parts of the world, and try to understand what the drivers are of some of the more abrupt climatic changes that we see that may or may not have been felt synchronously in Greenland and the oceans and the continents. Mm. 
Um, could be some delays and lags between the different components of the climate system. and Yeah. yeah you might not even see the same signal in the same place I mean, necessarily. It takes time, we think, for a lot of these signals to propagate. Right? And also when we look in our records, we might be looking at, at a pollen record, but it takes time for vegetation and landscape to respond to a change. Yeah. Or we might be looking at a dust record, which can actually, if we've got exposure of, of landscapes and we get some of the big sort of... Um, climate changes from sort of near glacial conditions or whatever we see very fast responses of exposure of all this um landscape when sea levels change and we get uh, and dry landscapes and water's trapped up in ice and then we get changes in dust very quickly and we see that some of these signals we're looking at aren't always in sync and sometimes it's probably because we're looking at a signal of a very different part of that climate system whether it's um windiness you know uh, temperature precipitation vegetation response or because maybe it takes time for some of these signals to propagate globally. So we kind of, over the years, Intermit has evolved into um, a network of people really trying to pick apart, again, at very high resolution, a very with high chronological um, precision, some of these very abrupt climatic changes that we see evidence for and understand a little bit more about the drivers behind them by being horribly picky and trying to date things as precisely as possible. Yeah, because if you want to get it, I mean, I'm kind of picturing in my head a whole bunch of time series, yeah. you know, vertically, one on top of mm. the other, and you have to get all the, the time axes, the horizontal axes lined up properly, yeah. right? And yeah. to do that, you need to date each one of those. You have to have a very good measure of what the dates on all of those time series are, yeah. um, because if you can't, can't do that, then you won't be able to figure out what the, let's say you see a peak in one signal, you mm. know, if you want to get a sense of the lag between oh, well, here's the peak in the wind versus here's the peak in some measure of temperature. Yeah, yeah you've got to, those all have to be on the same same time axis. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. otherwise you might be tempted to just line those peaks up thinking yeah. that you're, that, oh, well, those must have happened at about the same time, but maybe not. There could be a lag between the peak in the wind and the peak in the temperature. Yeah, yeah. so it's difficult. I mean, because sometimes we're talking about climatic changes that happened, you know, on sub-decadal scales. Hmm. It could have been quite extreme. Yeah. Which but then you need to make sure that your uncertainty is subdecadal as well. Mm. Right? And quite often it's not, which is why often we end up aligning these things, because it's the only thing we can do right, yeah. to try and understand. But if we're trying to answer questions about the pathways of these changes and how they propagate and how and where in the world they start first or what drives them, then we need to really actually, for some of these situations, we need to be able to do that very precisely. Mm. Um, so for me it's great, because if you're using ash layers, we can again assume if we find an ash layer in the Greenland ice cores and the same ash layer in the marine core and the same ash layer in a lake, that we've got three climate records that we can line up at a single moment in time. Yeah. So that's kind of um, how the my part of the research, I guess, fits in with that, that, that network. Yeah, because when you have a, an eruption, you can be pretty confident that the ash from that, the, the tephra from that's going to land at pretty much the same time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there, there might be some ash that is dispersed, mm-hmm. you know, by the atmosphere. You said a few hundred kilometers possibly, yeah. you know, yeah. away. But on the timescales you're talking about, that's basically instantaneous, yeah. more or less. Yeah. 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 So that frees you up from having to... Yeah, so that, that gives you a moment in time that you can use to line up all these different time series. Yeah. So then we can yeah. check for the, you know, whether or not different parts of the system are behaving synchronously or not. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, so that does give you a clear fingerprint, a, a clear way to time. You call, you call it the chronology, you know, yeah. the yeah. pinning the times down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So actually, I, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but as we were talking, I remembered that it would be uh, that it would be good to go back to the hominid story for a second, if that's okay, and yeah. talk about 
you know, those timescales and the kinds of climatic changes that those early hominid ancestors may have been exposed to, right? Because I know um, uh, that over those timescales, over the kind of 100,000-year timescales, we've got really clear records of um, ice ages, you know, and mm-hmm. interglacials, you know, periods between those ice ages when the temperatures were pretty good, uh, yeah. good for us in the sense of not freeze, not, not not frozen over most of the planet. Um, but were the early hominids exposed to that very much? I mean, were they far enough, kind of, uh, they're, they're close to the equator, right? So right. I don't, uh, I might be misremembering, but, um, you know, like, uh, in terms of the ice ages, like, how far down did the glaciers actually retreat yeah, I mean, from the poles? Near, and, like, yeah, nowhere, no, nowhere near, near there, right? Yeah. We're talking about yeah. Northern Europe and, you know, across... Siberia and North America, right? We're not. Um, mm. So yeah, in East Africa for sure, there were. They did not have major glaciations. There would have, maybe on the highest ice, highest mountains, there may have been ice caps. Mm. We know Kilimanjaro still has ice on it. So mm. that, you know, there would have been locations that would have had different, and uh, may through time have had some glaciation, but it's mountain glaciation. It's not ice sheets. Yeah. Um, in the tropics, it tends to be more to do with the fluctuations between aridity. And humidity, so oh, you get okay. periods of more rainfall or less rainfall. Um, yeah, and, and we're still really trying to pick apart exactly how those how those worked and how much the climate fluctuated during periods of aridity or, or during periods of more humidity, because we don't know even from the records we have. Again, the timescales at the moment aren't good enough that we can really identify how these very abrupt and rapid changes we see, even within some of the glacial or interglacial intervals, mm. how they were in. In East Africa, we don't know still yet. Our records, you know, we're, they're getting better, but we haven't quite got there. Yeah, but it makes sense that there could be big changes in rainfall, like in precipitation. Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah, that I could wrap my head around that. And I guess those early hominids, they weren't farming yet, so they weren't yeah. growing crops, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they weren't, that happened pretty recently. Yeah. That's more like a 10,000, 20,000, if I remember right, kind of time scale. Yeah, probably not that, in East Africa, but there. in the Eastern Mediterranean, kind of the, what they call the Fertile Crescent, so the... Um, parts of the Middle East where they really started agriculture yeah. early. That was sort of ten or eleven thousand. So the yeah the early hominids in, in East Africa, they wouldn't have depended on this you know rain cycle for growing crops necessarily. But obviously the rainfall affects what kind of vegetation is around, and then yeah. that affects what other kind of animals are around, and that yeah. affects the whole food chain. And you know yeah. it affects you know, where it might be a good place to find. I don't know, something really big for your whole tribe to kill together and eat together yeah. and uh, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, okay. But you said that's also still, like, the kinds of climate changes that they would have experienced. Um, that's, that's still kind of open. Uh, well, it's still pretty open. And like yeah. you mentioned earlier, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of landscapes. So it's a mistake to just think of, you know, it as just a savanna-based yeah. landscape that either is rainy or not. Yeah. You know, that there are mountainous regions and more kind of lake-based regions yeah. and then deserts, yeah. too, I'd imagine. So yeah. you, have to, you have to put that all in your head and imagine... Yeah, the, the, don't don't think of early humans, early you know hominids as just sitting in one part of Africa, but being all over the continent. Yeah. And, so yeah. in the northern hemisphere, I think when you talk in in northern Europe, certainly about kind of coming out of the last ice age, we often you often hear people say refer to climate amelioration, so the climate getting better, right? Because we have this vision that how we live now is better, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if it is better than having an ice sheet on top of you, for sure. Like, in, that, you know, in that way, places yeah. here yeah. have become more more inhabitable when the ice sheets went away. But when you're in East Africa, it's kind of much, or in, probably in a lot of tropical areas, it's a very different discussion. Is it mm-hmm. ameliorating when it's getting drier in some areas and wetter in other areas and you've got yeah. shifting of ecosystems and, and environments? It's much more complicated yeah. when you haven't got just this, you know, 
Is advancing or retreating ice, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you you said that because I thought of that when I when I heard myself say better. I'm like, yeah, ah, better for yeah. <laughs> better for who? Well, better if you're trying to live. Some areas know. would have got better. Some areas mm-hmm. might have got you know worse. And we know that at times that you know people talk about the Green Sahara. So during the, the African humid period, so this, uh, during the last ten thousand years, maybe in the early early part of the Holocene, which is the climate period we're in now, the, you know, we think that a lot of the Sahara was really different. It wasn't a big dry desert. Mm. There were you know, there were lakes and rivers and connected green corridors that people could have moved through much more easily than they can now. So hmm. we kind of have this set thing that now is the optimal climate, but probably... You know, Depends on where you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How you've adapted. Yeah, like maybe it was fine to be near the equator during the Ice Age. Maybe that was pretty good. <laughs> it could, could have been. So on those, another thing that I like to talk about sometimes uh, on these paleo timescales is to just reinfo- to, to dig into that idea that on 100,000-year timescales, you know, those climate shifts are related to the changes in the Earth's orbit, you know, changes in its tilt a little bit and changes in the how elliptical Earth's orbit is at particular times and how it's oriented, and um, because that affects the amount and distribution of sunlight on mm-hmm. the planet, and that affects you know, how big the ice sheets can, can get. Um, but that that's very, very different from the mechanism that we're seeing now and uh, which is, you know, the mechanism we're seeing now is when you burn a bunch of fossil fuel and put carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, yeah. that traps, well, it, it that carbon dioxide absorbs radiation from the Earth's surface and then redirects it back down uh, here uh, to, to the Earth's surface where that energy then ends up warming up the oceans and warming up the land and melting ice and having all sorts of effects on the circulation and things. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm sure there's there's something, and I don't know how much your own research lines up in this particular way, but um, I guess it's probably a question you get all the time. Yeah. But you know, can you learn anything about modern climate change from the looking at the paleo, those kind of longer term? And I know that there, I know there are some things for sure. You can talk about climate sensitivity and things, but I just thought I'd give you a chance if you wanted to say a little bit, if, if there's anything you wanted to say along those lines. Yeah, I'm, I don't. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from the past, partly to do with understanding how different successions take place, so what happens when one ecosystem changes into another, and or, mm. or what directions do our ecosystems shift in, do they go, is it with topography, is it with altitude, is it north-south, you know and trying to understand how fast some of those changes can take place is I think really important, to know you know, if we see something changing in one place, is that typically going to kind of be a precursor to something else, oh, right. so it's understanding those successions and, those, and the speed that those changes can take place in yeah. I think from the hominin side, understanding how our ancestors adapted to climatic change is informative and interesting, but we're such a different species yeah. now. Yeah. That's quite um, that's quite a big step from how we're behaving and using yeah. the planet and what we rely upon. Yeah. Um, they didn't need as many lattes, yeah. for example. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, and mm-hmm. certainly right. no podcasts and no. computers. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hmm. yeah so th- I liked your, your point about that you can see how different parts of the, the time scale on which different parts of the climate system have responded in the past mm. and that you could look at maybe those same components like um, I talked with uh, Bianca Perrin who studies uh, lakes and lake development over mm. climate uh, long term kind of you know tens oh, to cool. hundreds yeah. of thousands of years yeah. and so she talks about there's a development of a certain kind of, of tree, a really hardy tree that shows up first mm. you know during a certain part of uh, lake development and that they can use that as a marker for Oh, the, 
we, we know that the relative time scale of these things because we can see evidence of, well, that's when the really hardy tree shows up and then, then this happens next and this yeah. happens next. Yeah. So it sounds like you're talking about that sort of thing. And then once you get that sense of the of that, that measure of, well, here's the time scale on which a lake or something responds, you can compare it, I guess, with what's happening now to some lakes and say, this is either way faster than or about the same or yeah, slower or than. Or is it moving in a different you know, direction than different we would direction. expect? Or, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing is about so sort of um, thinking less in the kind of uh, hominid perspective, more on the timing rapid climate changes. Is sometimes, and certainly with something the intimate group has been working a lot with, is using these reconstructions of past climate to test models. So we can run hindcast effectively mm. climate models in these scenarios and say, can we do our models reconstruct what we know happened, mm. what we've got evidence for happened? Yeah. And if they can't do that, then this, you know maybe we need to think about whether our models are appropriate simulations for some of the things we're testing. Hmm. Um, so there's a certain element of reconstructing the past to, to just double-check that we're doing it right as we project forward into the future. Um, yeah, for sure. And there are some very rapid changes that you know, are real challenges to some climate models to try hmm. to reconstruct, and we don't know which bit of the system we're not getting right. You know. Um, Have you ever heard of... Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of these uh, state estimates. Have you heard of that sort of uh, thing? So this is a, a state estimate you... You've got a, a numerical model like you're describing, and you have a bunch of observations, and it intelligently um, nudges the model in a direction that's more consistent with the suite of observations okay, that you like have. A data assimilation procedure, or sort of, but um, it doesn't change the solution, like yeah. in the interior. So if it, it, to, to use kind of language from differential equations, it just changes the initial conditions and the boundary conditions. Right. So it. It's just helping you pick the right family member in the family yeah. of solutions to all the differential yeah. equations. Okay. Um, and that that works really nicely with modern data because yeah. we have a decent amount you know, these days of oceanographic data that mm. we can use to constrain it. But I have seen people do it. I have seen people do paleo, yeah. uh, like paleo ocean state estimates where they've you know used the small handful of cores and things that yeah. they have to do it. It's, it's really ambitious, but it's really interesting because then... Um, if you can get it to work, then you can at least say, well, this is a product and this is a a solution to the differential equations that is consistent with all the data we have. Yeah. So I, I was wondering if you, how how do you approach that? Um, how does you know you or your field kind of approach? I don't know to the extent that you're you're involved in that personally. Mm -hmm. So because I know you're doing a lot more kind of lab based stuff. Yeah. So don't feel on the spot no, here. No, I'm just right. curious <laughs> about like how do how do folks who are modeling get something that even looks that resembles a paleo world that even looks like, you know, that, that seems like such a wide open parameter space to me. I don't know where you would start to try yeah. to get in the right neighborhood. So, I mean, this is outside of, of what I'm doing, but I've had, you know, I do have conversations mm -hmm. with people about it because when we're, we're saying, we know, we know that this happened, can you, no, our models fall down at that part, you know, and, but <laughs> you have to start with a, a condition. And quite often, one of the time periods that people look at a lot is the last deglaciation. So the, the transition from the last glacial maximum around mm -hmm. 20,000 years ago to our present more stable climate 10,000 years ago and during this time there were some huge fluctuations almost back into glacial conditions that number of times and they were quite rapid so people test you know run models through this period to say well can we reconstruct these really abrupt changes and what could have forced them and quite interested in quite interested in trying to understand what triggered some of the changes but to do that yeah they have to have some kind of initial condition you know what state mm -hmm. do we begin in so they quite often there are certain periods of time that get selected as kind of states to run from, I guess, where mm. we think we have a good idea of what... You know, we know the orbital parameters, we can model those, that's not too difficult. Oh, yeah. But then 
you know, what was the sea level? What was the what were the greenhouse gases? You know, mm-hmm. so you still have to try and get evidence for some of those. So I think you're right that if we can improve the conversations between the people doing the paleo reconstructions and start reconstructing the kind of data that the modelers need for those conditions, because mm. quite often we're doing very different things. Mm. We need to sort of speak to each other a bit more to, to be able to do that, I think, because yeah. mm. if I can tell you how much birch there was at a landscape, it doesn't tell you how much CO2 there was in the atmosphere. So, you know, we have to think a little bit about trying to interpret our proxies in a way or our, our evidence in a way that is useful for those models. So it's still a conversation being had, I think, but there are some really interested, interesting studies yeah, a proxy, getting the getting the proxies right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's important for sure. I think that's one of the things that has happened in oceanography that luckily, I, I think there's a, a fairly close relationship between the observational community and the modeling community yeah. because of that. Because we kind of the the data density is just that, such that we do need each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like there's not so much ocean data that the observationalists can just run off and say, well, we we got it, <laughs> we, yeah. we, 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 we've got enough. But there's also um, there's not there's enough data to do a reasonable job at constraining an ocean model, but yeah. there are still lots of things we don't understand about mixing and some you know process level stuff in the ocean. Yeah. So I think that has led to a really nice kind of you know uh, mesh between those communities. And I see that um, a lot more. I see a lot more, yeah, modeling involved in oceanographic studies and, and mm-hmm. also the ice core studies, and these communities probably doing a bit better job than some other people working on mm-hmm. land. Maybe it can yeah. happen. Maybe. Yeah, I think part of it is the. Complexity and variation on land, because mm. you know, not to generalise oceans or ice cores, they tend to be in places. You know, people taking cores in places that have at least either an ocean above them or an ice cap above them. Yeah. Whereas on land, we've got you know from deserts to jungles to permafrost to conditions. There's so many different suites that you know you need a much more complex model, I think, to capture the range. Maybe that's not fair of the oceans. I don't know. Well, I was just. I, uh, I'm not, I think I was, I was trying to run that question through my. Um, uh, through my head to see what what comes out of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with land processes to really have a good sense of that. But I, your comment made me think of how not only can you have very different you know kinds of land, but mm. on long time scales. Oh yeah, that used to be a desert, and now it's something <laughs> completely different. Yeah. Oh, it's back to a desert again, and now it's like you can have that sort of yeah. shift in even what kind of uh, land it is. Yeah. And there are folks who work on you know land carbon cycle and the vegetation cycle, and I, don't, I know that yeah. um, I don't I know very little about this, but in these Earth system models that folks use for climate projections um, these days, there 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 are land models in there. Yeah, sure. you know, and yeah. the vegetation models are really impressive as well. Yeah. And so, like, individual grid cells could be different yeah. kinds of land, and they could change over time. And, like, oh, this is a wetland, and oh, now yeah. it's not a wetland. And, yeah, no, that, that's a whole um, topic that many people are making good careers out of digging yeah. into because it's, it's so uh, it, it's unconstrained at the moment. Maybe yeah. for your next interview, yeah. find someone. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know some folks in Exeter who might, who might uh, be happy to come on. Um, somebody I went to grad school with, actually, who's now living in Exeter, who is also from the U.S., who also moved over you know, here at some point. Um, so, yeah, how about this the South Sphere project? I, I kind of just glanced at it briefly, and oh, yeah. you know, I, I know you're um, you're involved with that. I saw, but like peripherally, you, you know, yeah. peripherally. Okay, so, um, yeah, okay there's not much don't... to say about it yet. The um, the cruise has been postponed another year because of logistical issues. So, okay. there's, yeah, it's. Um... I'm waiting to get my hand on some exciting lake cores from that one, but yeah. So that one involved um, looking at dispersal, right, of material around Kerguelen Plateau. Is that well, right? From, I so only had a really brief look at it, but yeah. So this is a project run by colleagues in Bergen. Okay. And um, so it's their project, really, and they're involved 
interested in the westerly winds and the sort of um, high southern latitude climate transmission. Um, they're going to the Kogwelan Islands, that's, right. the, that's the thing, so the, the lake sediments, we will at some point look for the ashes in. So working with my colleague Willem van der Bilt does a lot of the work on that. When I, um, and he and I have done some other collaborations in the high northern latitudes, but this mm. is a... Yeah. Kogwelan Islands will be exciting, because uh, there's very little known about mm. volcanism. We don't know how far around in these fast westerly winds that the ashes can go in the southern hemisphere. It comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, ice. I think ice people, you know, uh, paleo folks really yeah. uh, like it, and folks who do ecosystems work, you know, really yeah. like it. And I guess because it's it's fairly isolated, you know, so yeah. it, the signals that are there, I guess, are mostly kind of clean signals. Mm. I, I'm guessing. I guess so. Yeah. Um, it comes up a lot. It, that reminds me of um, so Liz Thomas, who is an ice core scientist yeah. who works at Bass. Um, she's also talking about she's doing that kind of project where they're looking at different kinds of diatoms and right. how yeah. you know how far the diatoms get spread kind of by oh, the really? by the oh, winds wow. and if they cool. can if they can see different diatoms from different locations uh, and uh, to, to use that to say something about the dispersal spatial scales and things so like that. So being dispersed from exposed. Diatomite, or I guess so. I don't. Okay. You'd have to ask her about yeah. about we we talked oh, cool. we talked about it on the podcast a little bit. So I there's some <laughs> yeah. So you can listen to her directly. Yeah. And uh, but it but it sounded like um, she said it was it was kind of working. Like she mm-hmm. had some initial data and she was uh, had, had this nice exciting moment where like oh it's kind of working. Like her her idea no, she I was seeing it play yeah, out. Yeah, we don't really know because we have this really there's a lot of people doing cryptotaphra work in the northern hemisphere. Got a lot more land. So mm-hmm. when you go to the southern, the higher latitudes in the southern hemisphere, we've got a huge amount of ash being produced in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the fallout patterns, it's really all going to the east because those westerly winds just take it and it goes. So yeah. there's not much of that found in the Pacific, but it's probably, it's falling out on land and then it's going into the Atlantic. Mm. We don't know how far it's going because we've only got these little spot islands or the next real mm-hmm. landmass you have to get as far as southern Africa, right? Right, yeah. So... And again, probably with New Zealand, where's that ash all going? We don't know how far around it's going, and it's just, it's not so easy. You need, when you've really got, you know, you're really jumping over long distances. Mm. It's quite a challenge to start looking for things and where they might have come from. That's something a good physical model could oh, yeah. could help you a lot with, though, right? If you knew you were doing a good job of modeling the atmosphere in small scale motions, it could yeah, probably maybe. help you at least get a, a, some, oh, here's the footprint of where this stuff it tends to go. physically could go, yeah. Yeah, 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 that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, Dave, Dave Monday at Bass is doing stuff like that. He cool. might be a good person to talk to yeah. about that sort of thing. He's getting involved in that in that world a bit. Um, yeah. So I also kind of like to ask about people's you know pathway mm-hmm. into science. You know how you ended up kind of here. Yeah. Where were you before here? I was in Manchester for yeah. a couple of years in the geography department there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, a great place. You like it? Yeah. Really yeah. nice department. Um, good quaternary group. Also quite interested in the geoarchaeology as well, which is. One of the reasons I was keen to go there. Yeah, um, so not just the climate, but the archaeology also, part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, something I've always been interested in. Old, old civilizations and things, and like, yeah, yeah. And I saw so you were at Oxford at some point, and then there were some other places too, right? I, I only had a brief glance at it at the moment. At the moment, um, or where were you before Manchester? Before Manchester, I was in Oxford. I was okay. there for a long time, actually. I was yeah. in the research lab for archaeology there, um, not really doing a lot of archaeology, but um, doing tephrochronology. Um, okay. And that was a fantastic place. We've got mm. a radiocarbon group there. It's a really, um, it's a really stimulating department. Mm. It doesn't have any undergraduate students, which means it's very research focused. Oh, really? Um, that has its advantages and disadvantages, but it's a really stimulating place to be. Um, Basically, just lots. kind of a research lab, and yeah. yeah. But the researchers that because it's officially in the school for, school of archaeology, 
but it's a kind of physicists and chemists and biologists and geologists all applying scientific knowledge to archaeological questions, I guess. So it's a really mm. diverse and stimulating place. Yeah, that was... And I imagine kind of in the wider context, too. I mean, not just in your lab, but, you know, that's, I mean, one of the privileges of the whole Oxford-Cambridge thing is, you know, you've got so many great academics just nearby. You can go down the street and talk to them if you want. And yeah, I guess so, yeah. Have you ever been on this talks.cam site here? Yes. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, amazing. So that site just really clearly shows you there's, you know, you can look at every day. There's tons and tons of talks, mm-hmm. at different topics all over Cambridge. You could spend and a lot of time listening. You could spend all of your time. I, I remember looking at this thing yeah. and going, like, that could be your full-time thing. You yeah. know, you could just show yeah, up yeah. in Cambridge and be like, I'm just going to go to these talks. That's a quiet word we have do. to have with new, um, you know, when you have new researchers or PhD students, you have to say, no, this is the resource you know throw yourself in but remember you've actually got a job to do because you have there's a point where you think well, i can't miss anything you know i think you have to realize that you're it's all right to miss things because otherwise yeah. you would spend your whole life doing it yeah. you have to yeah you have to let, let some things go by yeah yeah and it i feel bad missing talks sometimes at uh, i try to go to all the oceans ones because yeah. those are kind of organized by you know our our, our group yeah. and it looks bad if nobody shows up to yeah, those yeah. but there's, there's always a time pressure isn't there about Oh, how do I go to all these things that I want to go these talks and things that I want to go to and yeah. also do the job I'm supposed to do and yeah, that's so that's a, that's a process I guess of just constantly trying to strike the right balance we'll do that know. every day yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There, I think maybe I'll take one day off sometime and just like just do that for a whole day just go to different departments and go to different talks and like because as long as we're here we might as well enjoy yeah, it and take, take advantage yeah. of it yeah so before Oxford where like where where'd you kind of grow up and like what were your um and uh, what kind of um when did you kind of get a sense of like oh I might go in the the scientific direction and oh that was dead set I know exactly what it was yeah um I was well actually I was thinking about being an archaeologist when I was a school school kid and then uh wasn't sure and then went to our sixth form college was separate from school and they had this kind of open day for people to come around and they kind of condensed lecture all of the different classes into 20 to 30 minute slots so you had like a taster mm-hmm. during the day you could go to different lessons and see whether a subject was the one you wanted to take at a level or not mm-hmm. that was a good idea and i've been to the ones i wanted to go to ancient history english french i think it may be i can't remember a few other things mm-hmm. and sort of decided what i wanted to do and someone said oh well, i was going to walk home with a friend and he said oh why don't you come to the geology one I'm going to the geology one I thought oh well, maybe that'll be interesting he's like yeah come to geology you know it's, it's relevant so I, I went along just to be sociable and the the teacher there a guy called Laurie Doyle was uh, the most inspirational thing just had me hooked within oh, okay. 20 minutes I was like okay which one am I going to drop then what am I not going to take so that I can take <laughs> geology um, I mean it was really interactive he's an excellent teacher and he had you know had us blowing with straws into treacle and water to think about viscosities of magmas and he had all these different kind of experimental things going on and yeah, and then the so I took the A level, and you know I think I knew pretty much straight away this was something I wanted to keep learning about how the world works. And, and where were that? Where, where were you? I was I grew up in uh, in Worthing, so on the south coast. Okay, okay, Brighton. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, where was the this inspiring researcher? Where were they from? Laurie. Well, he was a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, like in in the school. Yeah. Yeah. So they nice. actually taught geology at A level there. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So this. So they had, had a big impact, like you know, showing impact. you, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. showing you. Here's a possible pathway. Here's something you could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't really know. I don't know how many people make a, a real plan, right? I think I just thought I want to study this more. This mm. is this is the something that I wanted yeah. that I don't want to drop. Right? Yeah. I want to learn more about it. So then I decided I'd do geology at university. 
realised at that point that having not done any other science at A-level was really going to bite my bum and mm. I had to, my choices were um, more restricted than they would have been had I got sciences at A-level. So geology was my only science, which isn't really how you're meant to go into earth sciences. Um, but got a place at Cardiff, mm. um, went there, enjoyed, that was a fantastic place, really um, mm. Proper geology, deep time. There was only one one person particularly interested in the quaternary, which is the last couple of million years, hmm. um, and that's the bit that I got hooked on. You know, the kind of, I guess it was more manageable timescales. It's how the landscape that we see now has evolved, oh, rather yeah, than yeah. you know, um, rather than looking on these deeper timescales, which yeah. I guess are more conceptual. But and the supercontinent um, and the yeah. you know Pangaea and thinking about which I, you know, yes, I still find fascinating. But I guess for me, the you know the last when I started to learn about ice ages and you know the alteration of the landscape I thought you know this is the stuff um, and really a lot yeah. of live debate and really, really good discussion and, uh, you can pretty much yeah. use the same map more, <laughs> which is nice you don't, yeah. you don't have to like oh no Africa wasn't there it was in a yeah, different place one of my weaknesses has always been structural geology I mm. always find it really hard to envisage everything in 3D so maybe that's partly why but okay it's kind of the same shape now so um, <laughs> what time period it. can I use the same map okay yeah. that one I'll go <laughs> maybe that's it I like that <laughs> yeah so that was yeah then I did a master's at um, Royal Holloway where they have Quaternary Science Masters, which is pretty much world-renowned. It's, it's an amazing department. They, at some point, must have made a decision that nearly all of their physical geographers would be in the same sort of field, right? So mm. they're all quaternary, or nearly all working on the quaternary. So it's a very strong cohort, and they have this... this I'm sorry, you said of, that was at Cardiff? Uh, where it was? No, that's no. at Royal Holloway, Royal which Holloway. is in the University of London. And that's a really, a really um, important master's course for quaternary science community. Mm. Um, so a huge amount of people who go through that continue on in academia and I guess that was so for me that was really the springboard to realise that maybe I did want to do research not mm. just not just learn more but actually get actively involved in the discipline you met some more people who were like who were involved in that, that research and yeah. who were and some other folks who were kind of in that channel kind yeah. of going in that general direction yeah. so it yeah. sounded like that gave you a more concrete sense of like okay here's here's how we could go yeah this, this is one possibility yeah. um yeah i think you're you mentioned a second ago like nobody makes a plan yeah i think that's true i think for most people it's just some function of interest and opportunity kind of where you yeah, end I up think right so. yeah yeah you, and in, inspiring people around you i think that helps you know if you're lucky enough to end up in somewhere with somebody who's a real inspiration who really cares about teaching and cares about inspiring people or is just good at it maybe they don't yeah. care but they're just good at it but um, <laughs> those a... people who and who give you you know help you to get opportunities I think that is important because I've had some really good mentors along the way that have maybe they didn't mean to be mentors but they've really led me given me opportunities or helped me find opportunities or encouraged me to do things that I didn't think I should say you know I can't say yes to that no way mm. you know they said you know, encourage me to do it go for it yeah don't yeah. don't say no for the other person like whatever you're yeah. thinking about doing yeah I, I try to be that way I try to like um don't turn myself down for anything right and it sounds like that's that's the encouragement you got was yeah. like well if there's something you're interested in just throw your throw your name in the hat there's no harm in like just go for it yeah. you know ask Ask you know, apply for any job, apply for any fellowship. You know, ask anybody out. Just go for it. You know, just like don't 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 say no for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it sounds it sounds like that was the advice. So I've always said very like, good you know. advice. Yeah, and I've worked with mm. great people. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the interest and opportunity, right? Yeah, I think sometimes there's a tendency to, um, to, and I'm not pointing any fingers, but for for certain science storytellers to try to craft this like. Oh well, since they were two, they knew. And yeah. there, are, there is the occasional person who has that story. I think there may be. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, there are. I, I, I wasn't one. Uh, no, no. I, I, 
the folks I've talked to on here, you know, the vast majority have had more like interest plus opportunity. Yeah. And that's probably true for everybody. There's only been two that were really like, I was on the beach as a child and I found, <laughs> and I knew that was like, okay. Well, I, and that, that seemed, you know, that's legit for them and that's, that's fine. I think some science storyteller really like to dig into that and maybe yeah. don't spend enough time talking about that. Well, for most people, it's much more meandering and much more like yeah. you're just finding your way every, every step of the way in your career progression. Mm-hmm. You're just like, let's just try stuff out and see what works and see what doesn't work. And you, you learn, right? You learn the, the stuff that you like, you learn the stuff you don't like, the learn, you learn the stuff you're good at and the stuff you're maybe not so good at. Yeah. Um, and that informs your future decisions and the yeah. kind of stuff that you, that you apply for and the yeah. kind of stuff you try. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I think it's interests. Well, I've always been driven by my interests and yeah. yeah, had interesting people around me helps. Are we doing like, have you had an opportunity to give some of that energy back you know kind of encourage other people and to try to because I, I try to I, yeah I really yeah. I try to do that too I really yeah. like doing that and I hope I'm doing a good job mm. at it one yeah. of the things that I'm most I guess most proud of is something that um myself and uh Stephen Engels who's a researcher at Birkbeck in 2013 so we were both postdocing at the time we managed to we got some funding through an EU cost action so this big networking fund to organize a summer school I can't even remember how we specifically how we came up with the idea but we decided to organize a summer school mm. for sort of phd students when it was organized through the internet network um and we kind of ran it off, i don't even know how we managed to do it the hours we put in to organize this first mm. one and to try and combine research and learning in one in a one week school it probably should be two weeks long but it's not so we had people coming from across europe um, researchers, mostly PhD students, some master students, a couple of postdocs who came from across Europe and joined us in this kind of bunkhouse in Germany. And we had a colleague who brought down their coring equipment that we could do um, from the Netherlands. And we cored a lake. Mm. And during the week, they had a couple of days. The idea was that they developed a research project, kind of one week, thinking about how you do. De- how you develop research, how you come up with research ideas, how you write proposals, how you design projects, how you implement projects, and then at the end we did a kind of a results day. It's a huge amount of work in one week, a lot of scope of ground we cover, but we had people from different backgrounds and um, a few um, sort of experts coming in to do evening lectures that were unconnected necessarily with the theme of the, uh, with Mm -hmm. the programme of the week Mm -hmm. around this research. Um, And these students get, you know, they're doing... They're learning a lot. They're doing field work they may not have done before. They've probably all worked yeah. on some kind of sediment, maybe. Not well, one of them. But they actually take the cores themselves, which is rare. You don't often get a chance to do. And now some of them are... Like, you know, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, yeah, you're, you're legitimately <coughs> involving them in the work of the discipline. Like, yeah. let's really do it. <laughs> yeah, and we did. Just actually do it. And we've, you know, we've now published one paper out of that very first core that we took mm. at that school, and which was led by one of the students who came along. Oh, cool. Um, and then, you know, we're still working on two more papers out of that first study. Hmm. And we've now had three more summer schools. And then they haven't all been so actively research-focused if we didn't have... If it wasn't a site that we could necessarily right. continue research at. But at least some of the students, I think, from each school have gone on and done some work linked to the sites. Hmm. Um, we were in France in the Vosges Mountains this summer. Um, and it's been really nice. So the students from that first one... So one of them now is a colleague here, is now a lecturer. He started, <laughs> joined us in the department here hmm. in, in January this year. Um, and we see these, you know, we go to conferences now and these students, you know, young students who were just starting their PhDs are now in academic careers of their own. And, um, I think that cool. was a, yeah. that's been a really good thing. And that's somewhere I've put a lot of my energy into trying to keep it up. Every time we have to raise money, we, we do it in a different location each time with a slightly different team. Um, but I think that's been a really, a really good thing for kind yeah. of 
giving back some of that energy and some of the experience and opportunities that I got to other people. It can be rewarding. Yeah, it can be really rewarding. And it it also, I I guess part of why it feels good, at least for me, just speaking for myself, to to try to, you know, help students out in that way, Mm. is it it helps you recognize, like, how crazy one's own situation has been. It's like, how, you know, how lucky have I been to just be in the right place at the right time and get the have the right set of folks around me to kind of push me through Mm. this, you know, scientific... I mean, obviously, when you know you do a lot of work yourself and you you drive a lot of it, but I really, I really try to have a lot of gratitude for the folks that I know have helped me yeah. a, a ton along the way and have given me that encouragement and support and feedback, yeah. and it's essential. Like it's really critical. I think so. So one of the things that I found is I've always worked with people who are very open, full of ideas, and happy to discuss, yeah. share ideas, work together, generous, encourage other people to lead things, not necessarily themselves, and that's something I think that's really important. And you see that not everybody works in open environments so mm. some environments I think are, are less open and discursive than others um, mm. don't know if it's just discipline or if institutional or, or exactly what it is or maybe you just need one character who's very protective and it, it kind of influences mm. other people so through the Intimate Network I got into that just before I started my PhD my prospective PhD supervisor I was working for him in his lab as a technician just for a few months on and um, that was in Oxford and Simon just said to me oh, you should apply to go to this conference, you might be able to get some funding. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sounds great. There's intimate meetings in Iceland, I've always wanted to go there. Yeah, sure. So I went to this meeting a month before starting my PhD, completely unaware there was one other PhD student, everybody else was sort of, you know, really senior scientists. Mm. And I had no idea, and I was like, and I'm speaking. (laughs) I was really out of my depth, but it was just wonderful, the most welcoming bunch of people. And so we've tried in the network to keep that going, and it's always been very open. It's grown, it's got bigger since then, Mm. I guess. Um, But with these summer schools, we try to have that attitude as well, and we see that some people are quite surprised that, you know, they're sitting and having a beer in the evening with somebody who's, they've read all their papers, but you didn't realise you could just have a chat with them, you know, because these some things seem quite inaccessible to some, if, you know, they have a sense of hierarchy that shouldn't really exist, Mm. right? So I'm oh, trying to break those barriers down a little bit. And, that's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's really critical. Yeah, breaking down these hierarchical barriers. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the advantages of um, obviously, like coming to a place like Cambridge or Oxford for your undergrad. Like that could be really um, that that could be really amazing. But that is one thing I will say for like doing your undergrad or having some experience through mm. some pathway in a smaller place where you have better access to the professors and the people who are, you know, doing the research and driving things. I think it, it's, it naturally lowers some of those barriers. And yeah. if you're in a small department in a small-ish school, it can help you feel more like, oh, okay, this, this is a community I could be a part of. I can see a way into this, you know, yeah. whereas like you said, um, and I don't know, I didn't do an undergrad you know, in, in here, so I don't know what it really feels like. But maybe here, it could. I could see how it could feel more hierarchical, especially if you're in a college where they very visually and explicitly have some of those hierarchical structures yeah, maybe, still in place. You maybe, know, maybe I, think, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think it probably varies from department to department, mm-hmm. and also with time. You know. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I try to get to know the students a bit and encourage them to come and talk to me, but yeah. sometimes they can be quite shy about that. Mm. Yeah, and. Well, I was just thinking about this experience of, like, um, so in my undergrad, we had a professor who, um, and I, I, I hope this doesn't sound, this is not a, I'm, I'm not bragging, I just want to give an example, because it would be totally silly and stupid to brag about something like this, but I just want to give an example of, like, one of the nice things about being in a small department. So he happened to know a couple of the, and work with a couple of the folks who won a Nobel Prize for 
Bose-Einstein condensation. Okay. And he would just have them over. You know, they would just come over for a barbecue. Yeah. And that really helped mentally, you know, to, to, to me, break down some of those yeah. barriers of like, oh, look, it's, you know, it's, it's just a person, you know, yeah. <laughs> like this, this yeah, person yeah. who, you know, you know, won a Nobel Prize for some very exotic sort of experiments in, you know, quantum mechanics is like, just a person you know he's yeah. eating some barbecue and <laughs> yeah so I had that that was the kind of experience I had at, at, in Oxford in the research lab there and yeah. I think because there were no undergraduates you know there was this hierarchy really disappeared because mm-hmm. people weren't spending a lot of their time teaching and doing this and that and they had a very strict coffee morning and everyone had coffee at mm. 10 mm. um, and you would just sit with these people whose papers you'd read and who you assumed that Professor X was you know somebody inaccessible and then you're just having a natter about what they did on the weekend with their kids you know thinking actually they're, yeah they're just people right? yeah for sure I think that that's something that some people enjoy I think fostering a, a sense of being something special but I think in the end we're all just people yeah um, yeah, yeah. Break. well I'm, I'm with you break the barriers yeah. <laughs> smash them up <laughs> no hierarchy um I mean, the only time, you know, hierarchy is for dis- decisions, like the responsibility of decisions yeah. of like, how do you partition that out? And so like, you know, the, the role that you have now, you might have the responsibility of, oh, I need to decide you know, who to hire for this mm-hmm. project. And that's huge. You're, you're yeah. going to have a big impact on somebody's life, like where they live yeah. and how long they live in a place and maybe where their kid goes to school. <laughs> and so like that responsibility shouldn't fall on, you know, somebody who's an undergrad or just, just starting, right? That, that's, yeah, yeah, that yeah. shouldn't be their problem. Yeah. So I guess in that, I think in my mind, that's the way that hierarchy is useful. <laughs> and But n- not in a rigid way to keep, you know, barriers between yeah. people really. And not, not and, and not in a way that, you know, I, I don't want a barrier to make people, um, I don't want that kind of inaccessibility or that kind of closed off feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there is maybe just, just the, the, maybe you need just the right amount of hierarchy to where, the responsibility for the big there's a clear like level of responsibility for who should be making the decisions but that that's it you know in every in every way we're just people yeah. um i feel like i'm rambling a little bit i didn't get to, <laughs> i didn't get to my point quite as clean but, but i think we said it i yeah. think we said i think we've yeah. we've summarized it nicely yeah, yeah. yeah i think we've we've outlined it what we're thinking of. <laughs> so kind of near the the i mean we can talk you know th- this is not me wrapping it up yeah, we yeah, can no, talk more if we want to but I, I like to ask a series of short questions about uh, different things you've learned okay. and when I say short I mean uh, I try to be brief so <laughs> if you call it a lightning round it's because I'm going to try to ask the questions quickly okay. as opposed yep. to going on so I like to ask it's just a series of quick like what did you learn about blank so the first one is like if you had a take home message or a takeaway message for, or, and it can be as long or short as you want don't worry um, you know, what's something you've learned about research about doing research and that that could be you know the field work or it could be the writing or it could be whatever component of research that something that you didn't kind of know when you oh, were first starting out it's a lightning question then, i want to ask quickly yeah um, no, you don't. no 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 you don't um, have to answer quickly take, take your time I think, what have i learned i think who am i who am i advising or or is this just oh, uh, um, just uh, me? You. Okay. <laughs> What's something you've learned about research? Uh, I, I guess one of the the big eye opener is that it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. I think, and that was a, a breakthrough moment. The first mm. time I knocked over a crucible in the oven and thought, oh, I've done every centimeter between a hundred and two hundred, and I've just spilt one. What I've got, I haven't got enough mud to start again. And someone said you can interpolate over that point. And I was like, oh, but it's inaccurate. You know, <laughs> and I had a real <laughs> 
you know, a real sort of sense of I'm going to let everybody down, oh, right. it's all going to go wrong, and then you realise that you know sometimes errors happen, yeah, and so you just have to be open and honest about them for sure. And that and you, you the and research it, isn't you know. perfect, and you read about it in papers, and you kind of assume it's all. You know, I think people are getting more open mm-hmm. about the uncertainties than maybe they used to be, mm-hmm. um, and this sense that it isn't this inaccessible thing is quite important. Yeah. That's another barrier we're talking about, right? Yeah, right. Comes to the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah smashing down the the hierarchy of the, the illusion <laughs> of this is all perfect. These experts, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's, there's an important distinction to make, right? Because I, yeah. I think you know, experts exist and are important, and there's a reason we need need them and mm. need to listen to them, but. It's it's important to put the error bars on it, like you just mentioned, to yeah. recognize that, like, well, no, we, we are also just people. We're doing the best we can. Here, let me show you how I'm doing things, and let yeah. me show you why I'm coming to the conclusion that yeah. I've come to. I think, I think that, I think maybe that sentiment to me, to me, the whole like anti-expert sentiment yeah. is a sign that there's just not enough of a conversation. There's just not of an actual. Not enough of an actual two-way back and forth. Like, well, I think it is you know. because you see data in its polished quality that comes out for communication to the whole world rather than what's actually happened in the lab before. And it's not that that information isn't there somewhere, but it's not very accessible. Yes, And I think, right. you know, so we just become the scientists, the boffins, the experts, whatever. It's something with a label that hmm. is set separate as if these are other people doing this stuff who would, you know, um, where actually, you know, it's not... You know, we aren't that different. You know? No. You know, I think that's... A... Not fundamentally. We just have weird interests that have carried <laughs> us in a particular direction, yeah. <laughs> is all. And we like to um, we like to really dig into a problem and just yeah. keep going. And it's just not a, you know... Yeah, we, we're not fundamentally that different, right? Okay. It's... Um, yeah, so I, I like that idea of yeah, may, maybe being more open as part of the solution, maybe having yeah. more actual kind of conversations as part of the solution. Yeah. And that's, that's part of why... Um, that's part of what I, I like to try to do. Um, like I do these Cambridge Science Festival events where yeah. the, the objective is literally I'm going to put some scientists in a room with some people. Yeah, I joined you for one, right? <laughs> you did, yeah. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah, and those are, are uh, and, and thank you for that. Uh, sorry? <laughs> yeah, those, those are always a lot of fun. Um, yeah, that was in chemistry, wasn't it? We did that one in chemistry. Oof, chemistry at Mill Lane, I can't remember. It bounces around a little bit, yeah. yeah. Mill Lane chemistry. We're going to do it at Bass this year, cool, actually. Great. Going to give it a, another shot and see. It's become kind of a regular a regular thing as yeah. part of the science festival. That's that's really re- rewarding. That's really been good. Yeah. But my, my objective is literally just putting scientists in a room with people yeah. and giving them an opportunity to have, hopefully, a, a real back-and-forth conversation yeah. as opposed to just a one-way, like, listen to me, you know, sort of thing. Because yeah, yeah. I think when you get information blasted at you um even if it's important you know you, you might feel a bit like deflect you might want to deflect it you mm. might want to just be like okay this is another thing I, I can't take in right now this is another thing i can't process that's a really good answer i like that answer um what's something you learned about field work i guess you, i mean it's also not perfect you know that yeah. is another thing not to steal um, your answer but i've learned that i if i try to work for too many hours when it's 42 degrees in the shade I get heat stroke mm. <laughs> that was my most recent lesson yeah um, yeah so that happened recently it was then. cooking yeah cooking hot 42 so, yeah it was really hot yeah. oh I mean what did I expect right um, <laughs> it was the uh, first time I've had heat stroke in my life uh, oh my not a very pleasant experience no but it's scary what like yeah. um, I was with a good happened? team you know I also learned that I was with a good team and that we'd planned well and we had you know we got everything was fine by the next day you know it was so what do you do? Energy, just okay. uh, hydrate. 
cool, cool down yeah. the body, yeah. What did you, what, so what are the steps? What's the first aid steps for heat? I, well, I don't know. I, I, I was yeah. half half conscious in the car thinking, like, oh, I've done this, but I can't think straight. You know, what is it? What oh, are they no. saying? But it's just about cooling the body temperature down. Mm-hmm. Right? So we were staying in a place there where... Um, we didn't have proper showers. Well, they did have showers, but it was river water. So we also they also had like a filtered bucket of water in the mm. bathroom. So yeah, we just got back to them. We got back to our accommodation, just kind of you couldn't get in the water, but kind wow. of pouring as, as much water over and lowering the body temperature and rehydration. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah the... that's fine. I mean, uh, I was with like I say, I wasn't on my own in the middle of nowhere. I was with other people and a good team. So yeah, well. um, but yeah, I learned that I have where my limit was. I think <laughs> in terms of heat exposure. Yeah. Which is good to know for the next trip. We're so fragile as creatures. We have this really, what seems like a pretty narrow range of temperatures that we're okay in. Yeah. And then if you get us outside of that range... I was quite... It's a strange feeling. I was, you know, it was suddenly like, oh, hang on, I'm not good. You know, it was really suddenly I realised that I wasn't good. I was like, oh, it's quite... Yeah. There's a wall. There's Mm. a wall there. Mm. It's it's easy to feel invincible sometimes, you know, when you're in your comfort zone, and then nature reminds you. Yeah. No, there's a wall. There's a limit. (laughs) Yeah. There's a point at which you're not okay. How about um, academia? What's something you've learned about navigating the academic world? Uh, which can include... That that can include research, but it's it's broader than that, right? Like... Yeah. It's such a weird world. Yeah. Well... I think I've learned recently that whilst when we discussed earlier about saying yes to opportunities that you have mm. to learn to say no yep. to a lot of things right? for sure. can, um, and that's increasingly you know I tell my students yeah go for it go for it do it you know you can do it and then sometimes you have to say you know what you can't because <laughs> you're just doing too much and yeah. um, I think looking after trying to find the time to look after your kind of personal space and energy is something I don't think I've fully achieved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can hear me with a croaky voice. Um, <laughs> I think it's difficult, and it's increasingly difficult depending on the responsibilities that you have. Um, and I think that it's a systemic problem that we need to somehow break a little bit. Mm. Um, Having to say no to stuff. Oh, the, the systemic problem being uh, that you sort of, there, there's like a set of assumption. expectations. There's an that, assumption that mm. we're all working 50-hour week, we just don't, you know, that... And there's kind of people say, oh, I, we talk about it like it's a good thing, you know, oh gosh, I was working all weekend, you know, and it's, we're kind of half saying it to have a complaint, but we're also sort of showing off, right? You hear these mm. conversations all the time, and I think we have to break that because it's not something to be proud of, you know, that, that you've. Yeah. So, and I think you, it's. You can work yourself into the ground pretty easily. Yeah, and I think mm. we all do it far too often in this. And uh, I mean, partly because we love what we do, right? So it's not always a horrendous thing to be doing because you know you're really hooked on something it's really fascinating but there's a lot of other bits that come in and a lot of pressure from people to 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 do other things that you don't necessarily enjoy as much Mm. but you have to kind of get them done to get onto the good bits so um i think we need to find a bit of a better balance somewhere an appreciation for other people also needing their own space and time a bit more than we always expect yeah Um, so culturally making it more acceptable for somebody to say Nope, uh, sorry, I can't do that. I'm, yeah. I'm doing too much work, or yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stay home, or I'm not going to yeah. do it. I got inspired by somebody on Twitter. Somebody on Twitter had mentioned that um, they had put at the bottom of their email signature, it says, like, I do not expect you to uh, reply to this outside of your working hours. I have that on mine. Yeah, yeah. and I thought that maybe it was you. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was when I emailed you. <laughs> I, I, put it on, uh, I stole it from a guy called Tim Heaton at Sheffield. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, it's out there. <laughs> I don't remember where it came from, yeah, but it, it's out there. In the I'm world. hoping other people will add it because 
you know, we all work funny hours and we can choose to do that. We're lucky to be at a job that yeah. is fairly flexible. That's right. But we shouldn't expect that other people are, are there in responding. That's um, right. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes, you know, I'm, if I've got a spare minute at, uh, you know, nine at night, mm. I, I might fire an email off. You know, I might, I, yeah. I'm, I try not to like really dig in, you know, when it's late at night, but I might, I might take care of an email or two. So I wanted to have that, I like having that on my signature because then I, I, I'm explicitly like telling the other person, it's okay if you like don't want to log on right now and yeah, like and I, see, I think it's a mixed fine. thing because oh, yeah? so my attitude and I don't always manage to do it because it's so automatic to press the send button is if I'm writing an email at nine at night unless this person is in time zone where because we work a lot internationally mm-hmm. so um, I will try to save the message and send it the next morning mm-hmm. because even just by having it in your inbox if somebody just looks at their emails maybe they want to find something and then they see this pile of emails in their inbox. You know, mm-hmm. they see this thing saying, this monster that says, answer me, answer me, answer me, you've got to deal with me, or tomorrow you're going to have to deal with me. And that stays in people's heads, not mm-hmm. everybody. Some people are more robust than others, I think. Um, but then you already know it's there, it's waiting for you, right? Whereas you don't really need to know about that until mm-hmm. you switch back on to work. Well, whatever time that might be, and that's your option. Yeah. But um, you know what So I, I tend to try not to send them out of there, certainly not to um, our administrative stuff. Um, okay. Because... They don't get the carrot, you know. They don't get the conferences and the, the discoveries. They work really hard, and uh, I think that's something that we need to think much more carefully about. The, just the expectation of having that extra email yeah. in your inbox when you're not, when you're trying not to be working. That's a good point. Yeah, no, that's a good um, point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Because they don't really see good. your message you know. so they get the end of your email, right? Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But you know what I would really love that would solve both of these problems would be, uh, and I think Gmail does this mm. maybe. Um, but our work emails, I don't think do. I would love an option to like, why don't you send this? You know, I'll go ahead and write it now yeah. and send it. But I would like you, I would like you Schedule. email program to automatically send this, you know, at 10 yeah. in the morning or something right, like this. Yeah, yeah. So that way it's off of my plate, but not yet onto the other person's plate. Yeah. <laughs> well, the mistake I make is I quite often write um, tomorrow. <laughs> and of course, then I send it in mm. the morning. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> it's now <laughs> today. So I have to right remember today. I'm doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. No, I, yeah, and no, I have to rethink my emailing now. That's a, that's a good point. That you are effectively, if if the person is looking at it in some way, then you're effectively putting it on their plate, and it might be in in their mind that yeah. you know they might have to deal it's with. It's easy it. to say, oh, you don't need to. But, you know, it's still it sits there, right? Yeah, that that might be that might be on on, on their mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's the, what about writing? What's something you learned about writing? That I need space. Yeah, yeah. Space. For me, I need like not physical space, but you mm. know, I, I find it very hard to jump in and out of things quickly. Mm. So I need to kind of clear days or clear half a day to really work on something. Mm. Um, yeah. But I like it. I like writing. You like writing? Oh, Just okay, trying to yeah. find the space to do it is tricky. You know, carving mm. out that time is very difficult. Um, I'd yeah. like to do more of it. Because there's a, I get a whole bunch of different answers from yeah. from academics on on all on all you know career levels yeah. who are like the full range of like I love it I really like writing to the folks who are like that is my least favorite really? it's like pulling teeth and mm-hmm. it's really unpleasant for them so so yeah you you like digging in and trying to put a, a science story together yeah. and putting all the pieces together yeah and, I do yeah. but but I do need that mental space to do it and I'm really mm-hmm. rubbish at you know and I've got half an hour between one meeting and the next. Mm-hmm. That's not I find that time. really unprofitable, or even two hours. But I know I've got this thing going on this afternoon that I have to prepare for. Then, mm. so I have to kind of find a way to focus. Do you ever like um, explicitly? Um, I sometimes put little blocks 
this is not advice. I'm just saying, here's what works mm-hmm. for, for me. Like I sometimes put little blocks in my calendar of like, this is writing time. Like these two hours yeah, this morning, I need to be better gonna, at doing that. I'm going to yeah. put it right there. And that's what that is. And if somebody wants to have a meeting, I will just treat that like, no, no, that is a meeting. I already have yeah. with me in my paper draft. <laughs> yeah. No, I think yeah. I need to do that more explicitly. It's, um, mm. it's difficult because sometimes it's easier to put out other people's fires than deal with your own, you know, you kind of think like, because you think, well, that's a quick win. I can deal oh that for them. I can sort that out in half an hour. I'll just do it, and then it's gone. But then, oh. of course, the next thing comes. <laughs> it's easier um, to put out other people's fires than your own. Oh my gosh! Okay, that's what's wrong with my work-life balance right yeah. now. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, it's because you, you also just, want to help people out. Quite yeah. often, these are people who, yeah. you know, you didn't know that it was a graduate student or a postdoc or someone, and they need help with something. And if you're, like you say, it's a responsibility as well. It's not. Yeah. So it's a sense of kind of well, actually, I kind of need to do that. This I is can important. do my thing later, but. Sometimes you don't then do. Yeah. Some um, so a few folks at, at the at Bass have set up um, this uh, shut up and write session every I week. I heard about this. Yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant. It's yeah. really good because then it's sort of you're all doing it together, so yeah. it is a meeting. Yeah, <laughs> you do have your do physically, physically you know, get together. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We. Um, so every week, you know, there's a two-hour block, yeah. and somebody is in charge of you. Do like they have a timer, so yeah. you're supposed to write or do something that isn't email. Yeah. for 25 minutes and then you have a five minute break and you can you know chat and go get a coffee or whatever and since you're all in the same physical space i don't know that helps somehow that, that puts some structure into yeah. it you know yeah. and it's the sort of thing that you you know want you could do it yourself but if i don't know about you but if for, for me i think it would be harder to be that structured yeah. if it really was just me yeah. then i might get tempted to put somebody else's fire out yeah. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to you know writing yeah. um yeah, so that's that's been something that has been really helpful. Uh, Have you been along to it? Of, yeah, I try to I try to go. Um, I haven't been able to go every single week, but I try to. It's like in my calendar, and so I do try to make that a regular thing. It's really helpful. Yeah, it, it's so I'll like respond to reviewer comments or try to put a new draft together or yeah, revive yeah. a dead manuscript, which is what I've been trying to do lately. And um, yeah, it's super super helpful. Yeah. And I think you like my, my the way I interpret it is you. You don't have to write that whole time, but the point is to just not email (laughs) and to not, you know, um, I mean, if you need to like do some analysis or something, like some, something in MATLAB or Python, that's all right. I think that counts. I think that's legit. It's like real research. Shut up and research is really bad. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. We spend a lot of time talking about research, not doing it, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm. Um, (laughs) I mean, you you do. That's how you work collaboratively. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You have to, right? Mm. You have to talk to. How about um, what's something about you've learned about teaching or mentoring or some you know, that kind of activity? Hmm. I don't know. Let me think. Well, I mean, I guess that 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 is one of the most rewarding bits of our job, probably, or for me. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe because it feels like a quicker reward. I don't know. It's really nice to see people doing really well. You know? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, they're not always all doing really well because everybody, you know, has different challenges at different times. But when you see somebody really pleased with their results, or somebody's got a paper out, or you know, gets a job or something, you know, mm-hmm. these, these moments you think, oh, that's really good. You know, or, you know, someone gets a good grade for their degree or whatever. It's uh, it's very rewarding. Yeah, for um, sure. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a nice thing to help you know to to be in a position where you can help guide people through some of that. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was that made me think of um, 
know, speaking of breaking barriers, I think one of the things that I would like to break is this idea that, um, you know, if you're a person doing your PhD, that the only successful route is to stay in academics. But oh, yeah. I think that's totally wrong, right? That's, that's yeah. really wrongheaded. Um, somewhere on science Twitter, which is what I like to call it, <laughs> that's <laughs> science, why you science Twitter, yeah. um, I saw that someone... I forget if it was an image form or something, but it didn't matter. It was the idea that, um, no, no, don't, don't forget academia is the alternative career. You know, we sometimes yeah. talk about, yeah. uh, you know, are you going into the academics or an alternative career? No, no, flip that. <laughs> Most yeah. people don't do the academic thing and they end up getting, you know, going out into the world and, and, and doing something else and doing research. Yeah. And, and one of the things that bothers me is I, I don't like how we culturally, sort of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, academia is the normal pathway or sort mm-hmm. of, we sort of feel like that's the, the you know, the, the, the only legitimate one, which of course is not. There's, I think you know, that's many, familiarity because it's what we've yeah. done. And so it's the pathway that we understand and we know how to prepare people for, yeah. and, you know, I guess if some people have come from more diverse backgrounds, but most of us have gone, stayed in academia or yeah. at least been active in most of our careers. It's very hard to really understand how to prepare somebody or guide them towards something else yeah, and I think that's where that's right. again just exposure to different disciplines and different skill sets is really important um, yeah although I, mm. it's a difficult one I mean like I said earlier on I didn't ever plan to sort of stay in academia just kind of kept finding it interesting kept oh there's another thing I can do that yes I can do that you know mm. and I uh, kept on going with things I was interested in but yeah for me too um, I, I so haven't I didn't explore um, other options no for me too I've only had academic jobs you know yeah. for better or for worse and that's that's Again, just a function of interest and opportunity. It's not yeah. a function of I don't yeah. I don't feel like I did anything in particular to to do that. It's mm. just been inertia, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and and now I'm so unfamiliar with the private sector that it feels a bit like an unknown entity to me. And I'm yeah. like, what would that even look like? Um, but I've I've have, I've had some master students who well, you know, I've had a master student who's now working in you know insurance and stuff down in, yeah. in London, and I, I I think it's I want to keep in touch with them to find out, like, okay, what is that world like for you? And, you know, what about, um, you know, your experience as, as an undergrad and, and doing your master's? Like, how, what kind of, what was your transition like, to, for lack of a better term, you know, from this weird academic world to doing something like that? And I think, I mean, I, I, maybe that's what I should also do. Maybe I should also have... Um, another podcast, speaking of doing too many things, yeah. maybe we should find folks who <laughs> have, you, do you know, next? Yeah. had, yeah, like what says your pathway? Cause I've only, I only end up talking to academics, but maybe I should also do that talk about, this. you could have a, a conversation with, with one of those people in this series. It doesn't, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. And it, like it, it, all that, I, I kept the umbrella really broad for this yeah. show to this, this podcast. Like the only thing, like your, your work whether past or present, I can now say, you know, just needs to have some overlap with climate in yeah. some way, which is a, such a broad umbrella that I can do a lot with yeah. that. That, yeah. So actually, no, that's that's good. I'm gonna. I need to do that. I need to find somebody who maybe did a climate-related PhD and is now doing something totally, totally different. different. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for <laughs> talking through that <laughs> idea with me. That's a good one. I need to follow up with that. Um, yeah. And if, you know, listeners, if I don't do that, get on to me about, <laughs> come on. <laughs> or if you, if people have good suggestions, like I kind of need suggestions too, yeah, to talk, talk yeah, to yeah. people about. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about, um, why don't we, uh, talk also, um, I like to, to kind of end quote unquote, again, this doesn't have to be a hard end or anything, but I like to ask about this pair of questions, which I stole from a different podcast of what's something that you, um, 
really don't like about your job and what's something that you love about your job and we've, we've had we've said lots say, of ingredients to this. Of these, yeah. Yeah. which is okay that's yeah. fine but like um if you had if you wanted to kind of answer those two about like which yes yeah, so something that you pick out is something maybe you're not your favorite part of the job and something that you really love about it gosh well the not favorite part is probably uh yeah, it's just the email wall that yeah. I can't get through. I I'm guess. glad you didn't say doing podcasts. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, that's all right. I don't do it so often I've got a, a real fixed opinion on that. Right, okay. No, no, I think the email wall and the admin, mm. we've touched on that, on yeah. that stuff. You know, the, just the density of communication that has to happen all the time. Yeah, communication um, density, yeah. The uh, favourite part? Yeah. I mean, we do the research because we love it, right? Um, mm. I think I've been in the field twice this sort of since the summer, and I think, yeah, the field work of it... And it's been a while since I'd done some proper field work, and it was really great just to mm. kind of be out there thinking, you know, this is, you know, we're just doing stuff. This is my job, and yeah. I'm in an amazing place, and I'm doing answering or trying to answer really exciting questions, and with good people around you. You know, we're really lucky when we can spend time with fascinating people. Right? For sure. To spend a couple of weeks in Ethiopia, or in the September, I went out. Um, with Preston Miracles group from archaeology to Croatia, you know, working on a beautiful island in, Croatia, on the, in the Adriatic Sea, you know, for just a few days of film work there. And I think, mm. this is my job. So we're really lucky. Yeah. When those, when those bits happen, I think you really remember exactly why you, you, know, you really love what you do. Absolutely. Um, it's not lost on you. Yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah. It yeah. sounds like, yeah, you try to stay, you try to have that gratitude and you try to stay aware of like yeah. okay this is this is wild this is amazing that, yeah. you, that we yeah. get to do this sort of thing yeah. um yeah uh, absolutely how are I, you feeling good yeah yeah no. anything else you want to talk about no i think it's been really good yeah, it's right. been nice to chat yeah. it has been nice yeah thanks a lot of ground. <laughs> you did yeah thanks so much for doing this yeah that's yeah. fine no, I, nice. I, I learned a lot and i really enjoyed the conversation i really appreciate it and uh yeah thanks for your thanks for your time Oh man. We should turn it around sometime and someone could interview you, I was thinking. There you have it, my conversation with Professor Christine Lane at the Department of Geography, University of Cambridge. If you'd like to follow or get in touch with Professor Lane on Twitter, she is at CHS Lane. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. The podcast is at Climate SciPod. Uh, do feel free to get in touch uh, with any of those accounts. So, uh, yeah, I have to take a quick break over Christmas, so they're uh, over the holidays, so the next new episode will be in January, uh, about a month from today. Um, so thanks for your understanding and your, your patience on that, so I won't be producing any for the next uh, couple of weeks here. Thanks for listening, downloading, streaming, and thank you for the reviews and the comments and the favorites, uh, and like I said in the introduction, they do keep me going, they do encourage me, they do let me know that... Uh, you are out there, that you are uh, liking the content, you're liking the interviews. Uh, send me feedback too if there's you know, somebody you'd like to hear in particular, especially in the UK, uh, if there are uh, specific questions from specific people you'd like to find out, just uh, you know, feel free to get in touch. And again, if you're uh, that nice individual who in invited me onto your podcast, uh, please get in touch with me on Twitter because all I have is your first name and I don't have any way to actually get in touch with you. Anyway, have a great holiday, a um, couple of weeks, and we will uh, talk to you in 2019. Bye.